April 14, 2020. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. Hope everybody's doing well out there in the quarantine, staying safe, staying smart. We're going to provide you with some uh, some fun content here over the next couple hours. So let's uh, let's go through the schedule. We'll, we'll rattle around through sports, talk uh, some sports news in the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, the MLS. We're going to recap Tiger King, the new episode. So if you didn't notice, there was an, another episode that just re- was released this last week. It wasn't a whole lot. It was more like a recap of the show, but we'll talk uh, about some of the things that we learned on the episode. We're going to jump into some racing from Tampa Bay Downs for Wednesday, some horse racing for Gulfstream Park for Thursday, for Oaklawn for Thursday. We will recap Monday Night Raw, and then we'll get to WrestleMania 10 review with uh, Andrew and Darren. We've been doing a lot of these old WrestleMania review and recaps. They're a ton of fun. So this one was from 1994 WWF WrestleMania 10. Kick back and enjoy. And we will begin with some news in the NFL. Running back Christian McCaffrey signs a four-year extension. $16 million per year. He's the highest paid running back in NFL history now on the per-year basis. He's now topped Ezekiel Elliott, who was making $15 million per year. Le'Veon Bell is at $14.1 million per year. So including, this is an extension now, including the two years left on his contract and the fifth-year option in the extension, expected to make around $75 million over six years. In 2019, McCaffrey had the, the biggest percentage of the touches of any team, 53%. The biggest percent of scrimmage yards of any team, 44%. And the biggest percent of scrimmage touchdowns, 51%. The problem, though, is Carolina was still 5-11. and And this is not an age where you really want to overpay your running back. Look what just happened with the Rams right now with Todd Gurley. Right, They have a good year, really good year or two You think then you want to lock them up But when you're back and you keep getting those hits Over and over and over and over There's a reason why they don't pay running backs a whole lot So I think this might be something you know, Over the next couple years Where you're going to see you know, A lot of positivity out of this And if you're a fantasy you know, player I think this even more stamps McCaffrey As someone that they're just going to be feeding the ball to Repeatedly I think what forced the hand of Carolina was think about all the players they've lost now in this offseason Olsen, Keekley, and obviously Cam. So you, now you're looking at your team, and if you lose this guy or you, you don't lock him up for a while, your fan base doesn't know what to do. This might not be one of those moves that makes it's one of those things that if it makes your fan base feel better than it may do help you win games on the field, right? At least they feel like you lock someone up. I mean, he's only the third player in NFL history to have a thousand yards rushing and receiving in the same season. McCaffrey, highest paid running back. Some sad news: um, ex quarterback Tavares Jackson died in a car crash, thirty six years old. He was the Tennessee State Tigers quarterbacks coach in 2019 and the quality control and uh, QB coach at Alabama State in 2018. It was just a single vehicle car accident at 8.50 p.m. on Sunday, seven miles south of Montgomery, Alabama. He does have a wife and three children um, that will uh, unfortunately be without their husband and father now. 
He had a 10-year NFL career. He was the 64th overall pick in the NFL draft. He started 21 games. He was a backup for most of his five years in Minnesota. That ended up being Favre's backup at the end of his tenure there. He did uh, help them win the 2008 NFC North. And then he signed with Seattle in 2011. He was 7-7 seven and seven as a starter with Seattle. He went to Buffalo in 2012, didn't play much there. And then he went back to Seattle in 2013. He was the, the backup for Russell Wilson when they won the Super Bowl. Let's get on over to the NBA. More sad news, which is just, uh, you know, it's what's... Obviously, with the with the virus and everything going on, there's a lot of you know sad news when you look around. But w- the last couple of weeks, there have been a lot of like non-coronavirus related deaths too in, in sports, which makes it even worse. And then you have one like this, where Carl Anthony Towns' mother dies of uh, of coronavirus. Jacqueline Cruz Towns, she was 58 years old. She had worked for the medical department at Rutgers University for over 20 years, and um, really, really sad stuff here as we've kind of seeing that virus now start to impact us all um, individually and then on the greater scale when we see, you know, some of these major figures or uh, their family members uh, being impacted. I don't know if you watched the horse game that they played they broadcast it or night. Now, anything that's running right now, like WWE and wrestling and all elite wrestling, they're running shows. I think most people are a little bit um, not quite as critical because they're trying. We all understand that it's just a different time. You don't have full staff, full crew, full everything. So the NBA made an attempt to, to do a horse game um, where the players would like record and stream individually their their shots and it would go back and forth with against who they were playing. And I think on paper this sounded good. And this is something that if they took all the the footage and edit it themselves and then put it out a couple days later I think they could do a good job of this unfortunately they were trying to do it as kind of like a live thing and it it just didn't go well um, there were some tech lags as you can imagine there were sound issues some sometimes you couldn't even see if somebody you know hit a shot made the basket um, I like the fact that the NBA is trying I like the fact that all these sports are trying they're out here thinking outside the box they're they're uh, attempting to do new things for us, right? They want to put things on that will give us, you know, something to watch and take our mind off of everything. But, yeah, I mean, hopefully they'll be able to. That was just their first round. Uh, Chauncey Billups defeated Trey Young. Uh, Mike Conley be to be. Uh, Mike Conley defeated Tamika Catchings. Zach Lafine crushed Paul Pierce, and Allie Quigley beat CP3. In, uh, I think the one thing that everybody took took out of this was. Holy crap, Mike Conley's gym is awesome. He's got this home gym that is bigger than many people's houses. Remember, for a little while, Mike Conley was the highest paid player in the NBA. So he's made the dough. And uh, he had a legit looking gym. I mean, wow. Conley balling. They had another um, thing going on in the NBA also. It was a an NBA 2K, the video game players tournament so the players were playing against each other in a video game tournament Devin Booker ends up winning this over teammate DeAndre Ayton so you know we see the horse tournament the NBA players basketball um, video game tournament they're trying I respect them I applaud them for that the horse game was you know 
people, the players in their own home taking shots from their own home courts. The next round of this horse game is Thursday, April the 16th. I mean, we've seen this happen now in SNL. I don't know if you guys watched Saturday Night Live last week where they did something similar. They uh, had a show that was everybody recording segments and tidbits from their own homes. And there were a lot of, you know, Zoom, Skype kind of uh, silly things like that. But everybody's trying right now. I I applaud everybody, you know, just thinking outside. Hey, let's let's do whatever we can for the people out there. It's going to be a little trial and error, though. I'd imagine with the technology, give some of these uh, networks like a, a couple weeks of you know figuring out some of the kinks, and I think they'll we'll be able to do a really good job providing some good uh, some good stuff out there. I think with everything that the, the unfortunate part so far, it's just not smooth, right? We're so spoiled, we're so used to everything. Being just boom, 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 boom with the way that we watch sports, and uh, and how good the broadcasts always have been. So baseball is kind of doing something similar. Players from all thirty teams are going to form an MLB The Show League, which is a video game. So it's going to have a twenty-nine game regular season. It's going to begin on Friday, April the seventeenth, and it's going to run through April the twenty-eighth. Uh, that's going to be the regular season. They're going to have three to five inning matchups played each day, and the World Series will be played on May the 2nd. Playoffs begin April the 30th. The top eight teams make the playoffs. Uh, the first two rounds are going to be best of three. The World Series is going to be best of five. And the MLB and the Players Association are going to donate 5000 per player to the boys and girls clubs affiliated. The first game is going to be at 9 p.m. Eastern on Friday, and it will be Blake Snell versus Amir Garrett. All players streaming the games will be on their uh, on Twitch, and they're gonna have you know they'll make sure that everything's all the rules for the the games that they're playing are are even. So here's the field of, of thirty: the D-backs, uh, John Duplantier, Luke Jackson from the Braves, Dwight Smith Jr. from the Orioles, Eduardo Rodriguez from the Red Sox, Ian Happ from the Cubs. Lucas Giolotto from the White Sox, Amir Garrett from the Reds, Carlos Santana from the Indians, David Dahl from the Rockies, Nico Goodrum from the Tigers, Lance McCullers Jr. from the Astros, Brett Phillips from the Royals, Ty Butchery from the Angels, Gavin Lux from the Dodgers, Ryan Stanick from the Marlins, Josh Hader from the Brewers, Trevor May from the Twins, Jeff McNeil from the Mets, Tommy Canley from the Yanks, Jesus Lazardo from the A's, Reese Hoskins from the Phillies, Cole Tucker from the Pirates, Fernando Tatis Jr. from the Padres, Hunter Pence from the Giants, Carl Edwards Jr. from Seattle, uh, Matt Carpenter from the Cards, Blake Snail from the Rays, uh, Joey Gallo from the Rangers, Bo Bichette from the Blue Jays, and Juan Soto from the Nats. So we got a, a big MLB This Show tournament starting soon. They're trying to incorporate video games into this as much as possible because it's it's safe and it's something that, you know, with all the esports, a lot of people do care about and are interested in this kind of thing. In MLS, Commissioner Dan Garber said the league is exploring alternative formats to complete the season. They're looking at tournaments, neutral locations, and an abridged regular season as, again, everybody is just trying right now, looking to... Get something back on the TV that's going to get us, uh, um, you know, entertained and going to give us something to watch for a little while. Okay, we're going to have to make a uh, strong, strong shift now from the uh, the world of sports to the Tiger King. So if you watch the Tiger King series, it was it was finished, and I, I think because it was such a big, huge craze, they wanted to follow up on it. 
and obviously because right now they can't have full crew and production and, and, and stuff like that. What they did with this la- this most recent episode of Tiger King was it was Joel McHale on Skype and he's just interviewing people one by one. People from the documentary, he wanted to ask them what they thought about the documentary, how their lives have changed since, what's been different since, have they caught up with Joe at all. So he goes through everyone. First it's Eric. Eric was the head zookeeper with the long hair. He hasn't even seen the documentary. Um, he hates how he was used to kind of lull the cats in to put them down. You know, this guy seems like a good guy. He hates Joe, says Joe's an asshole, says Joe's crass, and he likes the new relaxed environment with Jeff at the zoo. Said it feel he feels like Joe deserves his time in jail and he should die in jail. He loves the irony that now Joe is a big star, but he's in jail and he can't experience it. And Eric doesn't like being compared to Vince Neil. He hates Motley Crue. He doesn't do meth. And his teeth are messed up because he's old, not because he does drugs. So those are some of the uh, the major takeaways from the Joel, McHale, Eric conversation. Next up, it's Jeff and Karen Lowe. And, you know, th- like most of this was pretty light. Joel did get into, uh, you know, a couple serious, you know, questions with each person. But a lot of it, he was trying to, you know, have some fun and joke about things. He jokes with the new owners of the dude, Jeff and Karen Lowe, about the hot nanny. You know, <laughs> that was a big uh, discussion in the, some of the last couple episodes. They didn't like how they were portrayed. Um, Jeff thinks that Joe turned on him because he couldn't continue, because Jeff couldn't continue to help Joe. Um, Joel jokes with them about their biker jackets and some of their clothes. They all talk about how uh, Joe Exotic, the Tiger King, admits to killing the tigers and that they were healthy. He just needed the space. Jeff is also convinced that Carol killed her husband and he thinks that Joe is where he belongs now. I mean, we don't get a whole lot. Out of Jeff, because Jeff, I think, is a little worried that he might get um, charged or arrested, or he might get caught up in some stuff. So you don't hear him say a whole heck of a lot. Up next, it's John Ranky, who worked at the zoo, and he could never imagine the popularity of this. He loves the animals. Um, he's very loyal to them, and he didn't seem to hate Joe as much as a lot of the others. Um, Although he doesn't have like a like positive things to say about Joe, he said that you know Joe told ne- told him that he could never you know be capable of running the zoo. He was just about loving the animals. John was, and he said Joe was always belittling someone, always firing them. He said when it became all about the cameras, that's when things changed for Joe. And uh, John left the same day that Joe left. He said he didn't want to work there with Jeff because he saw Jeff get into a big fight. He didn't uh, like the aggressive nature. People all over know John now, John Ranke. They come up to him. Uh, He said he assumes he'll have to be back in court at some point, but he's never talked to Joe since Joe has been in jail. And he said if they they do a movie, he wants Matthew McConaughey to play him. That's little John Ranke. All right, all right, all right. John's got a new girlfriend now. Saf, who many people uh, said was a a female who actually um, prefers and, and... uh, recognizes as a uh, a male, and that was the individual who lost their arm, and 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 was really like loyal to the zoo and loyal to the animals. But um, Saf wanted to make sure that he pointed out that he was only making sacrifices for the animals and not for Joe. He was outraged that Joe killed the tigers, and but he said that Joe always had a way of explaining himself. And Saf never wanted the animals to be in captivity, but he understands that once they are in captivity, they can't go back into the wild, and there's not really even much wild out there for them. 
uh, didn't mind that he was being referred to as uh, as she in the documentary. No regrets about the arm amputation and not getting surgeries. Said that they used the footage as a safety video at the zoo for a while. And said that uh, Joe did a lot of messed up stuff, but Joe also did a lot of good things too. Um, he said he still trusts the tiger more than Joe. And he feels like justice has been served, but he doesn't want Joe to die in prison. And he said uh, Johnny Tsunami could play him. And uh, he said he's getting spotted all over now at Walmart in the middle of a pandemic. Up next was Joe's campaign manager, Josh Dial, who said he knew from the beginning Joe was batshit crazy, but he couldn't pass up on this opportunity as a political science major to run someone's campaign. So he ends up living at the zoo, playing with the animals, and he said that, you know, Joe was into the young, dumb men. Those were the guys he liked to date. He wanted someone who he could kind of take advantage of and, um, and control. Then things got a little sad because Josh talked about how he was in the room when Travis shot himself. And he wasn't able to get counseling after that. Um, he was speaking with Travis right up before he killed himself. And it was an accident. He said he, Travis did not mean to do this. He was trying to show him something about the gun. And he fired it and ends up killing himself. And Josh is in the room with him. Josh uh, mentions that people in Oklahoma hate Joe. He feels like Carol and all the animal folks are all the same and they're all crazy and they're all bad. And Josh wanted to get it straight that he doesn't do drugs. He's had you know, some issues. He needs meds and some counseling, but he's not a meth guy and he's not a drug guy. And he said that Joe actually has fans that are able to communicate with Joe in jail and help Joe respond to Facebook posts. He said that Joe is loving this. And then uh, Josh ends up uh, giving us his little fuck the feds quote <laughs> at the end that he became a uh, Kind of uh, infamous for Just two more That uh, Joel talked to This was just a 45 minute episode too So there's like There's nothing new in that Nothing new is filmed It's literally just Joel having conversations with everyone Talking to them When they watch the documentary What was missed What do they learn from that John Finley was Joe's ex-husband And now he looks way different He's got a beard in He's got a cowboy hat on His teeth are all in Um, Remember he He's not even gay. He's got a a wife now. He had the tattoo that was covered up on his stomach. It's all done. He mentioned how there were a lot of relationships formed at the zoo. He had one with Joe, and then he had another one with a a girl there. Joe had dedicated a song to him, and John said it was not Joe singing, which we all could tell that it was definitely not Joe Exotic, the Tiger King, as that country singer. (laughs) He didn't have that good of a voice. Um... And John says that him and his wife immediately watched the documentary. They wanted to be prepared. He was not happy to be portrayed as a drugged-out hillbilly. He'd already quit drugs um, years earlier because he uh, has a four-year-old daughter now. So didn't love the way that he was he was pushed in there. We didn't really get a whole lot from him. Final inter- uh, interview interaction was with Rick Kirkham. Remember Rick, the uh, the producer of Joe Exotic TV, who had been around and done a lot of things in the entertainment industry? He's now in Norway. And he's in there are huge newspapers, ads in Norway. Everybody's noticing him all over. They're all coming up to him, talking to him, Tiger King. He said nothing he has ever done has even come close to comparing to the popularity of this. And he said Joe Exotic is evil. This all started when Rick answered an ad in Craigslist. He called Joe, and Joe was just this crazy character. So Rick immediately went up there and then was, boom, like living in this zoo there to produce the TV show. Rick tells a couple of stories that are like, wow. Um, 
he mentions a woman who uh, brought up a uh, brought her trailer and a horse up to Joe Exotic and said, "Joe, um, I need some help. Can you help me take care of this horse? He needs room. He needs a place to stay. Um, he needs some food." And Joe said, "Yeah, no problem. You know, I'll take care of the animal for you. We'll have a good home. We have plenty of room and plenty of land here." And uh, as the woman left, he went right up and immediately killed the horse. And this is what Rick Kirkham had said. And uh, he said, you know, I don't take care of anybody else's animals. He said he took the horse and he fed it to the tigers, which is just insane. Um, Rick talks about Joe killing the tigers, and he doesn't think Joe will leave prison alive. He said Joe was terrified of big cats and that they didn't really let that be known enough um, throughout the, sh- uh, the documentary. He said Joe asked him to kill Carol, Rick. And um, Rick left once the studio burned down. He said that's when Joe went crazier than ever. He said he regrets meeting Joe. Um, he thought he could make a great show, and and um, he thought this was going to be something that, you know, he could have worked with. And he, he the dream, his eyes, and the content, and everything. Um, but he said he has nightmares about it all now. And if there were a movie, he said Billy Bob Thornton would be the one to play him. I could I could see that one. I could definitely see that one. So I guess what what we learn from this new um, episode um, follow up is that Joe's a bad dude, right? They it's weird how he comes off in the documentary because I think of all of you know of Joe of Carol of Doc Antle and some of the others like Joe actually comes off the best because we kind of hear from him and he I don't know he doesn't seem like that evil of a guy but when you hear the, the people like this that were around him all the time talk nobody has a good word to say about him and and then you hear the stories of what he did with the, with the horses there which is just like wow unbelievable and um, from the sounds of everything that Joe's in in the right place where he belongs right now if uh, if he if he did half of the things that some of the folks uh, mentioned so uh, to me it's you don't it's not like it's entertaining and stuff as the other ones, but if you if you watch the Tiger King and if you were you know involved in it, I do think it's a good watch to follow everything up, and you can just kind of hear a little bit more from some of the uh, the major players um, at the zoo and what their relationships with Joe were like and what they've felt about everything since. So, yeah, I, th- I thought it was at least worth a watch. And um, now, who knows? They're supposed to be. Um, on the History Channel, something coming out. They're talking about making a movie. I don't think this is the last we've seen or heard of The Tiger King. Just wanted to remind you about one of the sponsors of That's What G Said Podcast, Sarah Candle Company. Visit sarahcandles.com, C-E-R-A candles.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off of your entire purchase. These are all natural soy wax candle. They candles, they burn longer. They are better for you than the candles out there that have that traditional paraffin wax. I know the people from this company personally. I've grown up with them my whole life. They love candles. And the goal was to, to have an affordable candle that everyone can enjoy use that promo code G-I-N-O my favorite is fresh roses the fresh roses scent is awesome if you're a horse racing fan they got Del Mar in there you ever want to know what Del Mar smells like but you couldn't make it out there order your candle right now from Sarah Candle Company the website C-E-R-A Candles.com Sarah Candles.com promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off your purchase Okay, let's talk a little uh, horse racing. Let's get to Tampa Bay Downs for Wednesday. Get your past performances out. We're talking Wednesday, April the 15th. We'll start in race number one. 
And if you're playing any kind of early exotics, this isn't a horse that you'll probably be able to bet to win. But I think you can just single nearly pick five right uh, right off the bat with little Natalia. She was right up on the lead from the inside in her debut. Uh, but three others were sent, so she ends up in tight. She has to take up, and she never really has a shot after she loses her, her momentum there, and she loses a few lengths. I think, you know, most horses can't re-rally like that, especially horse at a, you know, a lower level. She got action in the debut. She comes into a newborn who's very good with, uh, you know, new acquisitions. And Gallardo jumps aboard. There's not a ton of speed in here either. I wouldn't be shocked if she's right on the lead. From the inside, this is not a strong group. Nobody else in here really scares me. Let's go with the number one, Little Natalia, and we'll single if you play that early pick five or any of those early exotics. The one, Little Natalia. In race number two, Maiden Specialweights going five furlongs on the turf course. The Four Ks Funhouse. He's interesting to me. So he debuted back in August at Presque Isle, going a mile. That's the only race he's run. He was squeezed back from the inside. Then he got stuck inside. He was in a bad spot. He was always in tight. He, you know, he tried to angle in between. And it was sneaky. The runner-up in that race came back to win next out. He just had a brutal trip from the rail. Now he's a first-time gelding. The question I have is, can he keep up early? Because he's going to be sprinting on the turf now. Again, I look at this group... I don't know, it doesn't terrify me. I think the 8 is pretty legitimate, but there's no, like, monsters in here that really scare the hell out of me. I think the 4's got a big shot to improve in here. So let's put the 4K's Funhouse on top. If we can get, like, 6 to 1, we'll make a win wager. We'll use K's Funhouse in all of our exotics. Other horses to use in that early pick 5. The 8, obviously my Claire, who cleared off early, who had the lead until the beginning of the stretch before fading. Now you're going to cut back, and I mean... He can fly. He has legitimate sprint speed. So cutting back, he should just be really fit. He's drawn to the outside. Um, He's going to be tough to run down if he can clear. The six, nobody knows nothing. Okay, positives. He his races on the grass are the best in here, right? But negatives. Those are back in you know 2017 and 2018. Is he the same animal now? He had a layoff from May of 2018 to December of 2019, came back. It was a race that was taken off the grass. He didn't run that well. So, I mean, but you can put a line through it. It was taken off the grass. The problem that I have was that was back in December, and he doesn't show up again until April. So you have a long layoff. You come back in December, and then you have another couple months off. I think he fits from, like, a class perspective. He's good enough to win this, but is he trending in the right direction? I don't know. I have him in the third spot. The five Charlie can do first time gelding with a little bit of speed. He has to prove it on the grass too. He does have one winning turf sib, so it wouldn't be a huge shock. I'm four eight six five in race number two at Tampa. In the third race, uh, the eight I think is going to be really tough in here, so I won't get too cute. I think Blazing Brook should be sitting really really close from the outside and have. Um, you know, and have this field over a barrel, and, and I think it, it'll be her race to lose here. The two pleasant Buffy. God, I love me a little Buffy, a little Sarah Michelle Geller. Pleasant Buffy. Or how about the original Buffy with Luke Perry and Christy Swanson? Oh, makes me so sad every time I say Luke Perry. Um, but pleasant Buffy. Speedy winner last time out. And yeah, she's not a win machine, but look at her last five. She's definitely improved, and she's continuing to pick her game up. So she at least has enough 
pace to be in the mix early on. So I'm going to be using the eight singling in some spots. If you want to go a little deeper, the others that the other that I would use would be the two Pleasant Buffy. Fourth race looks wide, wide open. I mean, going up and down the field, I think you can make cases for many in here, right? Like um, the two, like the one's probably going to be up against it, but he, I mean, he's still dropping in class in here. The two over praise, big drop in class. Lightly raced the three. Wow's a man gonna go second off the bench. I mean, and second time against claimers. The four Ray and Arrow, third off the long layoff, dropping with the blinks coming on. The five Milburns, another one making a big drop in class, was favored against better. Uh, Moro drama at least showed that he kind of fits at this level last time out when he was third. Analyze your vision can sit close and should improve. Second off the long, long layoff, big drop for oh, Danny boy. Wouldn't have to be much to beat these. The nine American driven will at least be forwardly placed in here. He seems like he's, you know, at least a fit at the level. This is where he's run his best races. And then you have Old Fort, who's just a horse who likes to pick up checks at this, you know, class level. So to me, this is a wide, wide open race. I have it eight. Oh, Danny boy with the seven, analyze your vision with the five, Milburn with the four, Rio Nero. But I am going to play um, at least one early ticket where I'm going all in this race because I do think you can make cases for all in here. But I will have eight, seven, five, four if you're looking for, I guess, some of uh, the way I, I stack this race as far as a top tier. Fifth race, another one that's on paper. I mean, the one looks up against it a little bit to me, stepping up. But then you have the two, Bahamian Star, who doesn't really, like, not a huge work pattern. The siblings combined are 0 for 8. The dam was 0 for. And Camacho has never, in the last five years, has not ridden for this barn. Why does Camacho show up on the two, Bahamian Star? That seems weird to me. The three, impressive speed. The dam was 0 for, but, the three full, uh, but has three foals, a couple of them winners, including Strategic Hope, who was a seven-time winner. And this barn is four for the last 29 with first-time starters, two for the last 11. Uh, the four, Audiosia. The dam was a seven-time winner. She earned 147000 And she actually won twice right here at Tampa. The lone sibling was a three-time winner. Nothing wrong with uh, the four. The five, Puerto Vartis, is a first-time gelding who had one of those tough rail trips on the inside. Um... Had, got stuck, had nowhere to go and, and just backed all the way up And that was in September And so hasn't raced since And now is going to drop in class And is going to try the turf Or and is going to drop in class And try the dirt for the first time The six is Roberto's ticket uh, The dam was unraised Not a whole lot to speak of on this one Burl was off slow in, in his debut He was up into contention He tired late It was it was not bad there, There's something there Maybe with Burl uh, then you get to Federale, who does make a lot of sense. He's going to drop in class. Um, he's going to go second start off the bench. He puts two together, and, you know, he raced it. You know, you see Saratoga against Basin, and you see four left in the Tremont. He had a good start. He moved up the inside, but then he moved up right into traffic. He stayed inside. He got an opening, but he was already tired. Um, he did just go seven furlongs off the bench, and now he's going to cut back. So he should be even more fit today. The nine large adds the blinkers. He broke out in his most recent start. He got caught in between horses. He had to shuffle back. It was legitimate trouble that day. And he hasn't really done anything wrong in either of his two starts. The problem with a lot of these horses, like you look at them, and 
And who, which, like, which of these connections that don't win a lot are you, are you going to trust, right? Because, you know, you start to look at, okay, mauling is only 13 for 175 at, at this meet. You look at, you know, Lopez on the, on the seven burl is only four for 45 this year. Santos on Federale is only five, uh, eight for 105 on the year. Pedro Cotto Jr. on large is only two for 52 and three for 70 at the meet. That's the one thing we're seeing a lot of riders that are really struggling the last couple weeks. I mean, in Tampa, Gulfstream, all over the place. So you're going to have to pick your poison and, um, and, and just hope that one of these um, kind of low percentage jockeys is able to get the really good trip um, on their horse. So I'm going to go in a wide open race. This is how we'll stack them. The four Audio Sia, the eight Federale, the nine Large, then the two Bahamian Star, the three Impressive Speed, the five Puerto Vartis, the seven Burl. I mean, the fourth and the fifth race to me are the brutally tough ones. So if we can shorten up a little bit, maybe in races one and three, um, we should have an opportunity to give ourselves a. Uh, you know, uh, more coverage in these races later on in the sequence. In race number six, we're going to go with the uh, the eight Queen's World. So let's go looking for that that price with Queen's World, who, look at her three grass races. They're not bad. Let's go back to September 9th. She was forwardly placed. She sat third. She got stuck inside. She got shuffled back a few lengths. It was a solid second. She was legit trying. She didn't love being down inside. Comes back on September the 18th. She's hooked 3-4 wide into the turn. She's chasing lone speed. She's chasing the heavy favorite, Seductive. She ends up finishing a good third as she's not far out of second that day. And the runner-up comes right back to win. And then on October the 2nd, she breaks out. She gets pushed five wide into the turn, then three deep. Just a brutally wide trip. It was just too much to ask of her. And then we haven't seen her on the grass since. She went to the dirt at Mountaineer and she won. And so the next couple starts, she's been on the dirt. But then look at, you know, you can probably excuse the November 17th race because she was sent to the bench after that. She then changed barns. She came back and tried the dirt again on February the 29th at Tampa. She's just not as good on the dirt. Even though she's won on the dirt, she's much better on the grass. She's got a big shot in here. Let's go with the eight. We'll put her on top. Let's use an all exotics. Queen's World. The number six, I'm that bird. I think you have to use third star off the bench. She's going to go... She was three deep early. She settled fourth. She was about six off. And then she got trapped inside behind horses. You know, it was okay. And it was against better. Now she's going to go third off the bench. She picks up Camacho. She drops in class. And she, she should be set for her absolute best in here. I'm going to be using her in all of the exotics. So I kind of have the six and the eight on a top tier. The four, uh, Rosalda had a bad start. She was bumped around. She was wide. She had an early move. But, you know, she was hooked wide at, at the turns. And she was finally up to third um, behind a runoff leader. Fades and finishes fourth. She fits. She's another one dropping in class. She wouldn't be a huge shock. I like that the one sweet leaf, one immediately for the new barn, comes right back. I wouldn't talk you off using the one on some tickets. And then the nine is another big angel um, on the slight drop-in clash. She just seems like she's a fit. She's kind of her own worst enemy at the start, though. She's a little slow away, and that kind of sometimes puts her in a compromising situation. I have eight six four one nine. 
and the 8-6 on a tier above, and, and the 8 definitely a horse to play if we get... I mean, Queen's World at 31 feels too high. If we get half of that, you know, anything in the double digits, that feels much, much more to where she fits with this field. In race number 7 at Tampa, I'm, I'm going to single the 5, Relishment. He showed some speed early on in his last start, but he was inside of three horses who were battling, and so he got put in that bad spot on the inside where he's getting in tight. He gets shuffled back. He has to come on again, but he's right up into traffic. He's got nowhere to go. He he tries to go back to the inside, but again, just nowhere to go. It, it's much better than it looks on paper. It was at the 16 on 2 level. The race has come back very live. The second place finisher, Sir Higgins, came back to win a 16 non 2. The third place finisher came back to win a 25 non 2. I think Relishment should be right there throughout with Camacho aboard. Relishment going to be my top selection in here in a single in uh, some of the late exotics. If you want to go deeper or maybe looking for horses to include along with Relishment. The three, Donnie Brosco, who's going to go second off the bench, second time Tampa, was your beaten favorite last time out and now is claimed and is going to be stepping up. I, there's more to him than what we saw last time out. He might have just really needed that race. The four, Fog Warning, who he he ran really, really well. He pressed from the two-path. He made an early move to the lead, but he had to work a little too hard to get by the horse who he was battling with, and that hurt him late. Fog Warning should be, at the very least, kind of a forwardly placed tactical player in here. The 8, Absalom, is going to go third off the bench, and he's going to move back to the dirt and cut back. He showed some speed from the inside. He had the lead early, but he was fine sitting second. And he came back up to challenge, but he was never closer to, you know, than, than about a length off after he was relinquishing the lead early on. And then the 9, Jack B. Winkle, he hopped at the start, then he was bumped around a few times. Uh, he made an early 5-wide move. He just had no shot with that kind of a brutal trip. So let's put the five on top and the single, our best bet of the day, and then we'll use the uh, the three, four, eight, nine if you're going a little deeper or horses to include underneath. And then to close things out, well, we're going to go one more time to the five, and we're going to go one more time to Cabacho. I mean, just a repeat of her last out race would win this, where she broke her maiden, she sat really close, you know, she was 0 for 8, but look at her, her turf form. That was her first start on the grass, and she she took a step forward. She's had a great trip. And again, I mean, that's the kind of trip that, that she should work out. I don't see a whole ton of speed in here. I wouldn't be shocked if she's right on the lead. Um, you know, the, the 10 smarty cat could go, and then the 5 maybe sits right behind them. Um, the 1 strong gem gets a big job upgrade to Santeno. You know, she has a little more speed than she's shown in her last couple. She hopped at the start, and then she was bumped. She was in between. She was in traffic. She had a brutal first 100 yards, and, and then she was too deep. She wasn't able to save ground. It just wasn't a very good trip. Now she drops. Jackie's Dream rallied for second back on uh, March the 13th, and then last time out was just a little bit flat, coming from way, way out of it, kind of outrun early, and um, just picking up some pieces late. Wouldn't be a huge shock in here. The three strict vow on the drop-in class has just been coming out of much, much tougher races with Gallardo jumping aboard. The six My Little Rosie would be another that wouldn't shock me coming in from fairgrounds on the drop after putting a couple races together. And and then the ten Smarty Cat, who shouldn't be too far out of it early. So five, one, two, three, six, ten, but the five on top there 
in race number eight at Tampa to close things out. So on the Tampa card for Wednesday, you know, if you want to play the early pick five, I'm singling the one right off the bat. And then we go to four, five, six, eight, with eight, with all, with two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. That's an approach that I would play. Maybe you don't want to play that pick five. How about a pick four, which starts in race two? I would do something like four, five, six, eight, with two, eight, with four, five, seven, eight, with two, four, eight, nine. Maybe you want to play some late exotics, a fifth race. You could play a late pick four. This is the one that we will build all around the number five in the seventh and we'll single. So the fifth race would start two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, with one, four, six, eight, nine, with the five, with the one, two, three, five, six, ten. Maybe you play a different pick four where it's something like uh, two, four, eight, nine, with six, eight, with three, four, five, eight, nine, with one, two, three, five. First race, the number one, Little Natalia. Second race, the number four, Kay's Funk House. Third race, the number eight, Blazing Brook. And in that first and the third, you probably won't be betting those horses to win. They'll be maybe horses that you single or, or you put on top in other exotics. Sixth race, the number eight, Queen's World. Seventh race, the number five, Relishment. And eighth race, the number five, CG. That's Tampa for Wednesday. Let's get you to Gulfstream Park for Thursday. Gulfstream Park, Thursday, April the 16th. Get your past performances out. And let's turn to race number one. Um, I like the four here, Jost saying. Um, you know, she worked her way up to fourth, fifth. She was tucked inside. She was about three lengths off. She angled around four wide in the stretch, and she just missed. She was a clear-cut second. Uh, Jost saying, I think, fits very, very nicely in here. I, the five Strella's War got was saving ground, and then she got shuffled back. She was sixth. She was at the back of the main group. She waited. She angled around inside of She Fled the Scene, but that shuffle early on really hurt Strella's War a little bit more. So I kind of have the four and the five in a top tier above. I think with Saez jumping aboard, that'll help Strella's War. I have the three cats out of the bag below them who's going to put a couple starts together. The one aerodynamic who's lightly raced with some upside. And then the six, she fled the scene. But four, five for me as kind of the top tier here in race number one with a three, one, six behind them. Race number two, we have a two-year-old's first-time starters, a group of fillies. And, I mean, in a field like this, you have to... You look up and down and you try to beat Wesley Ward, but I don't know who you could with in here. So you you start with a two lime who for you know Wesley Ward, the king of these two year old races, she's an obvious top contender. Her damn won her debut. She was five for thirteen overall. She showed big speed. She's produced three foals. They're all winners, and she's been working very nicely. Nobody else in here has a whole lot of success with first time starters, I guess, except the one. Ralph Nix with Awesome View, but then you have this filly who draws the rail. Um, there's lots of juvenile success in this family, but the rail's not going to be easy. Three siblings for Awesome View, and they're all multiple winners. I think she's probably the next one. If she was drawn more to the outside, I could probably bet her. The seven pretzel, the dam was 0 for 2, but both foals to race um, have won. One of them was Sweet Khaleesi, who's a four-time winner and a stakes winner. But this barn, uh, the Alvarado barn, is 0 for the last 24 with first-time starters over the last five years. So that's the same for the 8, Keen Watifa, which is a great name, right? Keen Watifa. Um, 
So I don't know. Can you use that barn with the the lack of success that they've had with first time starters? Uh, what about the three kittens dream? The dam was a two for twenty. The lone sibling was a winner, but this barn is just zero for thirteen with first time starters in the last five years, and only once hit the board. The four sophisticated curl. This barn is only zero for seven with first time starters, and only and three of them have been, have been in the money. The dam was unraced. Three siblings, two winners. You go to Yaffa. Their barn is just uh, the knee-high barn, just three for sixty-one with first-time starters over the last five years. Sister Aurora, this barn is only two for fifty-two. So you look at, you know, Nix hits at nineteen percent with first-time starters over the last five years. Ward is incredible, like that's what he does. Everybody else in here is terrible with first-time starters. That's why it's hard to get past those two. I think the seven would be the other one if you're looking for one. Um, but for me, it's just the two lime. It's if you're looking to go another way, it'd be the one awesome view, and then the seven maybe as a horse to pick up some pieces. But to me, this just looks very formful in the the two inside horses here, two one. Race number three in the five, um, legendary prince who takes the blinkers off and and gets to the grass. I thought was a little bit interesting. I'm gonna start with the nine violent flight on the drop. Just on the drop alone is gonna be a, a much bigger player in here. There is not much in this group. The four-weekend dreamer just missed at the level, so he's tough to exclude. You have to use him right back. Then the five legendary prints I have in the third spot. The seven, more than usual, is going to wheel back quickly in here. Just raced on April the 9th, and he wouldn't be a shock. And, and then the one, the first-time starter um, from the rail. So I, I just don't love anybody in here. I had this nine, four, five, seven, one in race number three. Nothing too crazy. In race number four, another kind of a, a spread out race. The 10 Lux Diamond off of that big maiden win, I would include right back. The 7 Gray Manners, who's going to be forwardly placed on the drop, I think it is a must use and, and you have to include. The 9 Take Charge again, another one dropping, has the the tactical speed and, and should be right there in the mix. Although, uh, if you see Paco Lopez on uh, um, any of these... Um, Mounts. Just keep in mind that Paco Lopez is going to be out now with a broken thumb, sidelined four to six weeks, um, which he uh, suffered in a riding incident on Saturday. So, just keep in mind that if you're playing a lot of these horses because of Paco, they won't be Paco on them. The number eight, Queen Cantharos. I just don't see much in this group. She wouldn't have to, you know, improve a whole lot to just be right in contention here. The two back March 13th race is not bad. Then she had some trouble last time out on March the 27th, and I think people are kind of dismissing her off of that trouble. And in the three, probably Grace. First off the claim, I'm not a big fan of claiming and immediately dropping, but in a situation like this, you can claim, drop, get claimed, and get out and win. So, 10... Seven, eight, nine, three. In race number four. In the fifth race, pretty captain obvious here, but I do think the nine on the drop in class, unforeseen, is the one to beat. He's coming out of good races. He's facing maiden special weights in races that he was competitive and had opportunities to win. And now he's in a maiden 50. And, I mean, he's run better against better horses than anybody in this group. The nine unforeseen. And it's funny, Landuros, who's been having a horrible 2020, he's actually had a good couple weeks with uh, with getting, you know, at least a couple horses into the winner's circle here after he took so long for a while to do so. 
So the 9 Unforeseen on top, the 11 Summer in the City on the drop-in class coming out of a productive race, the 5 Wicked Mercury will be including on the sli- including on the, the slight drop-in class, and then Kahiko, first time uh, on the turf, who's been working on the grass. I think Kahiko can take a step forward. 9-11, 5-4 in race number 5. In sixth race, um, I think there are two horses that I would key in all of the exotics. The number six, looking at roses, I feel like he's just going to come rolling. He and, and you look up and down this field, you have, you know, rhythm with soul, who adds the blinkers from the inside will be, you know, more of an off the pace type. But the two Prince Cozon has some speed. The three extra extra has some speed. The four Joyful Heart has some speed. The 7 Clamor is stretching out and will probably be showing some speed. The 8 Conquer has some speed. The 9 is adding the blinkers. You could see a ton of these horses going for the front. Looking at Roses gets the trip. I think Bourbon Currency might be better, but I, I like the fact that Looking at Roses has the races under her belt more uh, under his belt more recently than Bourbon Currency. That's why I lean to Looking at Roses there. So I'll put the six on top of the five. We'll use those two who should be getting great trips rolling late in that sixth at Gulfstream Park. Seventh race. The nine is where I'll start with Cozy My Boy. I just think off of that win, this is more of like a, I don't love anybody in this field. I don't think there are any monsters. And I think the nine is kind of on the upswing and could continue to improve. His dirt races are actually really good when you dig into them. The six horse, Big Ham, Big Hambone, who tried the dirt a couple starts back, and will take another shot on it. He kind of has the, the the style that should fit well here. I think he should be right in the mix throughout. He can maybe sit off a little bit, and if he takes to the dirt at all, I think he fits really well with this group. The number four, Never Stop Dreaming, is going to step up off the claim, and now a first time gelding. The number two, Holy Muchacho. I mean, he just seems like he fits in here. You put a line through the turf race, you look at his maiden 25 win. He doesn't have a whole lot of speed. He's not quick, so he'll probably have to, you know, get a little bit of a setup. The 3, January 1. He's in for 25 after, you know, taking a a chance against Graded Stakes Company in career starts number 2 and 3. Doesn't always seem as positive to me. Uh, And then the 7, Genghis. You want to go a little bit deeper. He's dropped in class, and he's been facing, you know, a lot, a lot, lot better too. So I wouldn't completely talk, completely talk you off him. I'd actually prefer Genghis just from like a using him than a horse like the number three, January one, nine, six, four, two, three, seven. But again, no real strong opinion there. It feels like more of a spread out race. The number eight, excuse me, the number eight race in Gulfstream Park. Earthquake, John Tenta, you wrestling fans. Let's go to Earthquake. I mean, he was just really wide last time out. Excuse that effort. If you're playing him off of his races two and three back, he fits here. You just have to be able to excuse his last race. The eight drama in Dixie's a first time gelding who is coming out of better. And then the one warrant officer who's going to go uh, into a newborn. But look at Warren Officer's race on January the 10th. Just a repeat of that effort. That was against 20 claimers. He'd be really tough in here. 6-8-1, race number 8 at Gulfstream. Race number 9 at Gulfstream Park. 
I'm going to go to the three. Uh, he is gone, who's a multiple winner, and who should improve with the race under his belt. I think he kind of gets a trip in here. I don't think he's he's as quick as some of the others. He should sit, and now he's going to cut back. So maybe a little more fitness. I'm expecting a, a rider upgrade today also. The one Cajun brother, who is an impressive winner against Open Company in his debut, now in against Florida Breds. The nine. Just kidding. Who's just been a hard-knocking type for a while He's been all over the place uh, Different racetracks And he'll show up and he'll fight And he'll give you a, a little bit of speed on the cutback This is a good spot for him If nobody jumps up and runs well He'll win this race The four, Silverly Enough Who's on the upswing He He's shown the ability now to sit a little bit more Which to me is always Kind of a, a very nice sign When you're able to show some speed And sit just off like he did on April the 4th Three one nine four there in that ninth race number ten. We're gonna go to the number seven, Sarasota County, who's gonna go second start off the bench and just missed. I think he's gonna get so much out of that last effort. the The problem you have is you know you look at the race like this too. It's like I know Joe Bravo is a very capable rider, but he's over fourteen at the meet. He's not had some very good rides, and he's only five for his last ninety eight. Like what? What point do you start to get with riders where you're like, I don't know if I could play this horse or really confidently play this horse because they get into trouble. And is it your fault for playing a horse that gets into trouble when you know it's a super low percentage rider who is, you know, shown an affinity for getting into trouble as of late? It's all about the price, right? Eight to one or so. This that feels right on Sarasota County. The six Cucina. First time gelding, second off the bench. That was a nice win on March the 11th. The number nine, Captain Ron, will be including. He should sit a trip. He, he fits very well in here. And the number 11, Macho Blue, very you know similar with Captain Ron. I think this is a good spot for him. The two real money gelding, big speed. The problem is this race looks like it has a ton of speed. So I wanted the horses who can sit a little bit like Sarasota County on top. 7, 6, 9, 11, 2 there in that 10th. And then to close out race number 11, uh, we're going to use the 9 on top. That is Elusive Row. Elusive Row took a shot against Better last time. The two-back race on January the 8th, that wins this. He has speed. He can come from off the pace. Look at how he won on November the 2nd and then how he came back and won on January the 8th. Completely different running styles, which I love for a, a horse like this in a spot like this. The nine elusive row on top of the seven French quarter, who looks like the one to beat, and then the four Val Doco nine seven four. I'd be okay with just nine seven in the last if you want to just to include them in some exotics. So you know, if you're looking at a pick five in the early races, I would probably play something like this um, in, in race one, one three four five with two, with one four five seven nine with three seven eight nine ten with nine eleven. In the first race, the number four, Jost Singh, make sure to include. In the fifth race, the number nine, Unforeseen, make sure to include. Sixth race, the number six, Looking at Roses. Eighth race, the number six, Earthquake. Tenth race, love the number seven, Sarasota County. And eleventh race, the number nine, Elusive Row. That's Gulfstream for Thursday. Let's get to Oakland Park for Thursday, April the 16th. Um, we'll go to race number two for the uh, the first Oaklawn play of the day, and that's going to be with the number nine, Digital Star, 
who was close up from the rail in his last start, but he was in tight. He had to take back a couple lengths, and um, then he was buried inside. He just had nowhere to go. Finally got an opening late, and he was strong up the rail. Digital star, the number nine. We're going to make our top selection. We'll make a win wager if we get anything around 4-1 to one in race two at Oaklawn. Race number three at Oakland Park. Uh, we're going to go to the number three, Rock Shaw, who has lots of li- layoff lines through his career. So you can make some legit excuses for this six-year-old. He's going to go through, start off the bench now. He's going to put three races together for the first time, like really ever, because uh, in, in a while. Because the last time we've seen him do it, every time he was able to put a couple starts together, it was sent to the bench. So he, you know, he's going to be able to, I think show a little bit of speed, who going to be able to sit a nice trip, and he fits the conditions of this race really well because he's a winner last out against 20, but the 20,000 claiming races are not considered an eligibility for this race. So you have a non-winners of the year where a lot of these horses aren't in the best of form and haven't won in a while, and you have Rockshaw who got his wake-up win last time out. If we get 7-2, to two, let's make a win wager on the number 3, Rockshaw. We're then going to move to race number 7. At Oakland Park, and we're gonna go and play a late pick three, starting in race number seven. Uh, I like the ten in here. Canadian game. Obviously, until we see a horse go this far, we don't know how far they'll go. But he can adapt to any pace. Look at his last three races. He's won three in a row. He beat twelve five non two claimers wire to wire. Then he sat a trip coming over here at uh, March the eighth at Oakland Park. And then on March the 21st, he came from way out of it. I have no issues with him getting the distance, and I, I think he's really adaptable. I like the number 10 Canadian game, the 11 red again. If There's not a lot of speed in here. I, he has the opportunity to wire this field if nobody goes, which is what he did going a mile in 316s last year. On March the 30th, nobody went. He wired the field. He uh, was really sharp at that point, but he might be rounding back into form. The number eight would be another one that we would include. Curl in Gray, who just seems like a fit. He can run all day long. He should have no issues with the additional real estate in here. The number six, Ocean Fury. Total wild card, right? Coming in from Dubai. Didn't run well in his last three starts. But if you were playing him off of his form before Dubai, I mean, he would be a huge player in here. We just don't know what version of Ocean Fury we're going to get. He he doesn't have a lot of dirt success. He's only tried the dirt one time. He might be worth, you know, including and in, in, in putting a flyer on on some of your tickets. And then the two is another one to include, and that's Frost or Frippery, who loves Oaklawn, loves to win races, and I think he's probably the one to beat in here. So 10, 11, 8, 6, 2, but I do have the 10 on top. In race number 8, we'll start with the 12. Okay, Calf Moon Bay. Going to take a flyer here, okay? Look at his last two races. So on February the 8th, he showed speed from the inside. He was a close-up third. He moved in between to the two-path. He was just a couple lengths off chasing, and then he backed up. Okay, we can... We can make an excuse and say that was his first start in a couple months. Then he came back on February the 28th. He broke well, but he was wide going into the turn. He was wide all the way around, and then he was eased. He wasn't really asked for anything. 
And, and so obviously he's eased back So that never looks good when the horses don't finish They don't get a figure Again, if you can be a little bit forgiving And excuse those performances And if you can play him off of what his form was like Before those last two races Now again, that's hard to do for some of us But with Calf Moon Bay He's going to be a big enough price to where Why the hell not? I mean, even if he's 10 to 1 Coming off of the races in the in the Lost Virginis and in the Zia Park Oaks. I mean, she would crush this group. Again, we don't know if she's the same horse that she was then. But she's going to add the blinkers. She's worked out five times. She has a new jock. No crazy panicky drop in class. Give me the 12, Calf Moon Bay here. To have a big shot sitting close We'll make a win wager if we can get half of that morning line price If she's 10 to 1, we'll better We'll use the 10 unique factor who can sit close And should be, maybe maybe even right on the lead Stretching back out The 4 Mongolian humor, humor who's going to come from off the pace The the number 9 Nona Madeline, who's the one to beat But I'm, I'm okay with trying to beat her in here I just, I don't know if she's kind of taken a step forward And improved enough And, and, and then the 3 Sarah C 12-10-4-9-3 in that 8th race at Oaklawn Park and then to close things out in race number nine at Oaklawn, the you know the two market king you could probably use in some exotics. Uh, I wouldn't talk you off the you know the four dropping in class fiery tail or the six Jack Van Berg who another one who you know a repeat of that two back race would make him pretty tough in here. The eleven and the twelve both seem like players to me. Special reserve and attain success. But I like the eight the most. Aggressive, 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 aggressivity. Dear Lord, why is it so hard for me to say that? Aggressivity. Okay, he was last night. He was eight. He was only five or six off though. He was inside and he ran right up into traffic. He was behind horses. He had nowhere to go until. Early in the stretch At which point he just way too far back And it was in the slop But if you put a line through that And you play him off of his maiden win And we know that this barn After having a little bit of a cold week or two Has warmed back up Give me the 8 on top We'll make a win wager If we can get anything around 5-1 to one. And uh, we'll play some pick 3's here In the 7th race Here we go 2-6-8-10-11 um, With 3-4-9-10-12 Single the 8 then I'll come back and play another pick three that starts in race seven where you single the ten with the three, four, nine, ten, twelve, with the two, four, six, eight, eleven, twelve. A couple different pick threes there at Oaklawn Park. The horses to include at Oaklawn throughout the day for me. In race number two, the nine digital star. Race number three, the three Rockshaw. Race number seven, the number ten Canadian game. Race number eight, the twelve calf moon bay. And race number nine, the eight, aggress- aggressive, itty, aggressivity, aggressivity. <laughs> there are your Wednesday Tampa, Thursday Gulfstream, Thursday Oaklawn Park. Let's take a quick break. Let's hear from one of our sponsors. And when we return, it's going to be wrestling time. We're going to recap Monday Night Raw from this past Monday, from April the thirteenth, and then we're going to bring on. Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali to go back in time and talk about WrestleMania 10. Don't go anywhere. 
Just wanted to remind you about one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Sarah Candle Company. Visit sarahcandles.com, C-E-R-A candles.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off of your entire purchase. These are all natural soy wax candle. They candles, they burn longer. They are better for you than the candles out there that have that traditional paraffin wax. Uh, I know the people from this company personally. I've grown up with them my whole life. They love candles. And the goal was to, to have an affordable candle that everyone can. Can enjoy Use that promo code G-I-N-O My favorite is Fresh Roses The Fresh Roses scent is awesome If you're a horse racing fan They got Del Mar in there You ever want to know what Del Mar smells like But you couldn't make it out there Order your candle right now From Sarah Candle Company The website C-E-R-A Candles.com Sarah Candles.com Promo code G-I-N-O For 10% off your purchase Let's get to the world of wrestling Um How crazy is this? On Monday, April the 13th, WWE was deemed essential business in Florida by the Orange County mayor. It is critical, quote-unquote critical, to Florida's economy. So um, Florida is basically inviting large events now without spectators. The WWE is doing live shows three days a week now. They just did Monday. They're going to have Wednesday NXT, and they're going to have Friday SmackDown. Unfortunately, the uh, XFL officially filed for bankruptcy, which you know, I think a lot of people were expecting it to fail. I don't. Th- I think it was going to be okay. Uh, people were watching it. It seemed like they they had some kind of cool, um, unique rules, and things were going well. It's just in the middle of this pandemic, a, a startup business like this just can't can't succeed. So that's unfortunate because I think more places for football players to get an opportunity to train, to stay in shape, and then to maybe get some to get looked at in order to to get pulled up to the NFL, I think is only a positive thing. If you're a big fan of like wrestling shows um, and you know like wrestling in the mainstream, there were a couple um, wrestling things on Netflix this week. The Big Show show. Which is a terrible sitcom with the Big Show, but it, you know what? If you have a kid, maybe throw it on in the background, see if your kid likes it. It's it's corny though. It's it's pretty bad. Um, it got up to number three on Netflix throughout the week. And, but there's a movie called Main Event. This movie, it's a kids movie, but this is good. Um, think about Like Mike. You know the movie with little Bow Wow where he puts on the magic shoes and then he becomes uh, like Jordan and he's able to play. Well, this is it's similar to that. It's kind of like Rookie of the Year. It's kind of like The Mask. You know how Disney used to have the Jersey Show that little series. Well, a kid is a huge wrestling fan, and and it's cool because all over his room he's got the WWE stuff and the New Day and Kofi Kingston and his grandma's into it uh, with him, and, and he has fun. He's watching Raw all the time, and he finds a mask, a wrestling mask, and this is a magic mask, and so when he puts it on, he becomes this awesome, incredible wrestler. And there are tons of real wrestlers who have cameos who are involved in it. It's a lot of fun, and it's very well done. It's like a real movie. It's produced like a real movie. It's and um, I think your kids will like it too. And hey, maybe you might like it. I don't. I didn't mind it either. You get to see um, you know the Miz and and uh, Keith Lee has a big role in in here. So maybe something to check out. Main event on Netflix. It was another one that was in the top ten uh, last week. There's also a new. WWE series on Quibi It's a little short 10 minute episode series And it's called Fight Like a Girl Where It pairs a struggling uh, A young woman That's struggling with a personal issue Together with a WWE superstar As they try to overcome adversity together 
And so it puts Naya, Charlotte, Natalia, Sonia Deville, Sasha Banks, Alexa, and the Bellas. Um, Stephanie McMahon's in this, and um, just a short, quick series on Queeby. If you have young girls, or if you're interested in all in, a, in checking something like this out, I, I haven't watched any of them yet, but I, uh, I'll give them a look and see how they are. Quick, they're quick. I like these little quick uh, series things. Ronda Rousey rips the WWE and their fans on the Steve-O podcast. She said uh, she put too much into this fake fighting, that the traveling was tough on her, but it, you know, it doesn't compare to like real fights. She was sleep-deprived from the acting in the theater, and she said, quote-unquote, fucking ungrateful fans. Um, her family didn't need the money. I think a lot of this is a work. I think this is great um, for whenever Ronda coming back. It sets her up as a heel, the crowd... Or and the other female wrestlers will have built-in heat, built-in storylines. They'll be able to boo the crap out of her. And we've already seen it on social media. Nia is talking trash. Some of the other wrestlers are talking trash to Ronda, and they've already started to include it in the storylines on TV. They're already asking Shayna Baszler about Ronda's comments. So I, to me, this is absolutely something that was planned, and that is you know part of the WWE storyline for whenever Ronda is going to come back. Let's get to Monday Night Raw from April the 13th. Let's do a quick little recap of this. Uh, Jerry the King Lawler was on commentary with um, Tom and with Byron. I, you know what? I don't know why Jerry needed to be there. He's a little older, right? He's a little um, more partial to catching the disease. He even posted online he flies over there yesterday on a plane that's basically empty to go and announce because WWE is now deemed uh, essential. I just don't... I, I like the fact they're still putting on shows. It entertains me. I just think the least amount of people that you need around possible right now is the best. There were too many people there, that, there, people there too that were just like there to cut a promo. It seemed like that was something they could have Skyped in or, you know... I just... I don't think you need all these people coming in, flying back out. It's, it scares me a little bit. Let's get to the show. I love it when they have these qualifying matches, whether it be for Royal Rumble, King of the Ring, Money in the Bank, whatever it is. So with Money in the Bank a few weeks away, we are going to have qualifying matches over the next couple weeks. We had three women's qualifying matches on this show, and we're going to have three men's qualifying matches on Raw next week. Drew McIntyre opened the show. He was interrupted by Zelina Vega. And they had a callback to NXT where Andrade comes out and he talks about how he beat Drew McIntyre for the NXT Championship and that was when Drew tore his biceps. I love that they tie this story back. We never really got a follow-up to it and they don't do this with wrestlers moving up from NXT. They very rarely go back to their NXT feuds. I thought this was great and I loved the idea of throughout the show building up this faction now, this new feud with Zelina Vega, with Andrade, with Austin Theory, with Garza trying to make them seem legit and badass and we would see that throughout the episode so the main event is set up for Raw, it's going to be the US champ Andrade versus the WWE champ Drew McIntyre we get a Ruby Riot versus Asuka match it's a Money in the Bank qualifier, these two girls worked really hard, it went pretty long Asuka wins a solid match so she's in, the first to qualify for the women's Money in the Bank match they announced that next week, the three matches for the men's qualifiers, Rey Mysterio versus Murphy, Austin Theory versus Aleister Black, and MVP versus Apollo Crews. Off the top of my head, I think it feels like they're building a little something with Mysterio, maybe to try to give him one more run, uh, like a last 
maybe Money in the Bank run or or just maybe even just be that ladder match guy to do some big spots in this. Uh, so I, I'm picking Mysterio, Alistair Black, and Apollo Cruz to win these three matches next week. Then we got an Alistair Black versus Oni Lorcan match. Jerry the King Lawler obviously had never seen uh, Oni Lorcan. He had made a couple weird comments about his name and he looking like Cesaro. And I mean, he is really quick. He's a badass. He's hard hitting. This was a good nine minute match. A lot of fun. Go back and watch it. Then we had a quick uh, Sarah Logan versus Shayna Baszler match. Shayna was asked about Ronda's derogatory comments. She made no response. Uh, Shayna then just beats Logan in 52 seconds. The ring announcer actually botches the announcement. They called Sarah Logan the winner, which was not the case. Sarah was crying after the match after Shayna just crushed her. And so Shayna now qualified. She's the second qualifier for the women's money in the bank. All throughout the show, we saw like three or four different um, little moments where we would cut to Seth Rollins in the background as the Messiah mentioning different things and... uh, it's okay. I love Seth. I just don't know if I love the Messiah thing. But uh, anytime Seth is in a program, the work will be good in the ring. So, you know, all throughout the night, we're, we're setting up this Andrade Garza stable with Austin Theory. Theory and Garza pick up wins. Vega's on commentary. First, it's Theory beating Tazawa in seven minutes and nine seconds. Jerry Lawler with another nice. Uh, a uh, piece of commentary here mentioning a ramen noodle moonsault. I, I just dislike Jerry Lawler. I hate saying this. He's never done it for me. Like, I know a lot of people love him as the old school heel, the old school wrestler. That's fine. I get that he was the king of Memphis wrestling for a while. He he never translated as a top-tier wrestler when he came over to the WWF because it was late in his career. And until he's with JR, and maybe only when he's with JR is when I like him on commentary... I mean, in the mid-90s, he's terrible. 93, 94, 95, 96 even, he's awful. It isn't until the Attitude Era when he's okay because he's able to just be lewd and scream, puppies, you know, and it it doesn't seem that off, but I just, I cringe at a lot of the things he says. We know that he doesn't put in any time. A lot of these wrestlers he's never seen before. He's not watching NXT. He doesn't know who Austin Theory and Garza are. And I just don't know if that does anything for the fans. So, Rey Mysterio cuts a promo about his match next week with Murphy uh, in the Money in the Bank qualifier. We get another um, Rollins Messiah promo. And then we see Angel Garza come out. And what's kind of funny, he's got this thing going with a woman now. He kisses the woman at ringside. He gives her the rose. Um, She's actually a photographer. That's his fiance. They're not telling you it's his fiance because they're kind of running with this womanizer gimmick. But that actually is his fiance. They're kind of pushing him as the ladies' man, womanizer type. So he, you know, he gives her a rose, gives her a kiss. Austin Theory gets the win over Miles. It's a quick match. It's uh, just about three minutes. And just like we got in their previous match against Tazawa, after the match, we get the Theory Garza Andrade beatdown afterwards, and it's setting these guys up with Zelina as a as a you no know, nice little faction. Drew McIntyre cuts a promo about getting revenge on Andrade for everything that had happened in NXT. And then we get a nice heel promo from Charlotte. It was, you know, just kind of over-the-top heel, but very solid. Oscar uh, and Kyrie with some, uh, some backstage yelling and screaming. They've been so entertaining, especially Asuka over these last few weeks when there haven't been fans because we've been able to see Asuka and her crazy kind of the crazy charisma. 
that she has. I mean, it's funny because she's like she's not being booked as dominant, but it seems like from like being over and being able to get her message across and like translate, she's more entertaining now than she's ever been in NXT or WWE. We get a Nia versus Kyrie Money in the Bank qualifier. I mean, this was a squash. This was just over two minutes. Um, and so a lot of people are asking about Kyrie. Is she leaving soon? She's been losing a ton of matches. She has not been really booked very well on the main roster. Um, we'll see what the future for Kyrie Sane holds. She was one of my absolute favorites in NXT. She was booked very well. The May Young Classic, she did great. And I wish she could get a little bit more of a run. I think she's she's a babyface, though. She's not as much of a heel. Her and Asuka breaking up, turning on each other, and then a match between the two of them over a title would be just incredible. Then we get Ricochet and Cedric Alexander versus the Viking Raiders. We get the matching gear for Ricochet and Cedric. Why did they lose? Like, why aren't we going with these guys? Cedric and Ricochet should be a legitimate tag team that they can build around. If you're not going to go with these guys as single runs and as individuals, hold them together. Let them go. The fans will like them. These guys can work at the very least. They can get you through a 15-20 minute match every Monday night. Let's get behind these guys. This match was good. It was fun. It went 13 minutes and Cedric gets pinned, unfortunately, by Eric. And so the Viking Raiders look like they're probably going to get a match against the Street Profits next for the tag titles. We have Bobby Lashley against No Way Jose. Lashley tells uh, Lana to shut the hell up outside the ring. There's already trouble in paradise there. More teasing of the problems between Lashley and uh, and Lana. He gets the win at a minute and 47 seconds. We get another Rollins promo. You know, dark with the black talking about the Messiah. Then we get the Street Profits backstage. And Bianca Belair is with them. And she's kind of talking trash to them, trying to motivate them. She... You know, they, they then cut a promo on the Viking Raiders and she's trying to help them and get them ready and pump them up because she thinks the Viking Raiders are a team that they've not had a lot of success against that they need to be, you know, the best versions of themselves to beat. Main event time, Drew McIntyre versus Andrade. This one went 5 minutes and 30 seconds. Okay, Drew wins, which is fine. I like the fact that, that Drew wins. But I don't like the fact that they build up all throughout the night. Garza, Andrade, Theory, uh, Zelina Vega. And then they have them lose clean in just five minutes. This should have been longer. This could have been a DQ. This could have been drawn out a little more. It's almost like you build, you build, you build, you build, you build, and then you kind of throw it all away at the end of one night. I just didn't love this. I thought there could have been different ways to end this to where you could have had them, you know, you know, Attack Drew in the middle of the match, no clean ending, and then we have like a little bit of a tease moving forward. So, yeah, I, I mean, it could have been better at the end, but I did like this edition of Monday Night Raw. I really did. Um, Rollins comes out at the very end. He attacks Drew. He gets a couple stomps in, and so it looks like our feud moving forward for the title is going to be Rollins against Drew McIntyre, which is a little bit weird, right? Rollins just lost to Kevin Owens, and now he's going to be in a match for the title. That was Monday Night Raw. 
We'll be back later this week to recap Wednesday night AEW, Wednesday night from NXT. But right now, we're going to go back in time. Let's get you back to 1994. WrestleMania 10, Madison Square Garden, Bret Hart in the opener against Owen Hart. Lex Luger versus Yokozuna. And then the, whoever wins that match will face Bret for the title later. We get the ladder match with Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. It's WrestleMania 10 with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. Back by popular demand to recap another old WrestleMania, the rewatch, the review. We have uh, an Italian, Darren Zocali, and an honorary Italian, Andrew Champagne, back to join the party. Fellas, how you doing this week? How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I'm tone deaf. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We we weren't we weren't sure if uh the the tone of this is gonna be uh, uh right, but uh I, I can't. There, you know what's funny and, and for, there's an inside joke. Some some for some reason somebody said something to us on social media uh about how like we were tone deaf for wanting to do this, and we what was funny is we really didn't even know what he was me- like how like, what do you mean like like what do you t- like I don't even know what you're trying to insult us for like are you like explain the insult a little bit to us so we can like know how to react right <laughs> yeah uh, apparently we're not supposed to talk about anything apparently except coronavirus so you know given the fact that I live in New York City and I think as of tonight literally 1 in 98 people in my zip code are infected so I welcome this hour and a half to 2 hours of something other than that and I think a lot I of other people, people do. We're not exactly. pretending like this isn't happening. We're not like if you follow you on social media, any of us really like we'll you know we'll mention things here or there. But um, especially you, Darren, you're like right in it a, a lot right now in New York, um, and you you are always posting about it. It's just kind of funny. Like some people, no matter what, it just seems like such a weird take to have. You know, it's such a weird thing to get to get upset about. But nonetheless, we'll uh, we'll record for uh, you know an hour to two hours here again and and get them more upset. So let's do that with uh, Amen. With, that sounds like with, a really good time. I am all for getting New York Yankee fans very upset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're gonna do uh, WrestleMania ten now. This is nineteen ninety four, and man, I will tell you. Um, re, uh, recapping WrestleMania nine from 1993 just the other day with Jason yeah. B, and uh, th- that one like, from a match quality show. The, the the most fun we had on that show was discussing the commentary because it was kind of a fun commentary team because it was Heenan and Jr. and then Macho was so bad and so oh, you awful. Guys, you guys destroyed him. I was less. Oh yeah. Fun. So so we so we had some fun talking about that. But I mean, wow. When we talk about like match quality and just from an in ring standpoint, it's amazing the difference one year brings in, in this company. And you know, right off the top. Dave Meltzer said that after this show, he saw the two best matches in the history of the company on the same night, which is really crazy. And uh, I think a lot of people say that at this point, WrestleMania 10 was the best of the WrestleManias so far. You're, you're talking about uh, Adam Bomb versus Earthquake, Earth, right? yeah, and then the Men on a Mission, Quebecers, <laughs> yeah. those two, uh, yeah. And let's not forget Bam Bam and Luna against Doink and yeah. Dink. That's and not even not right even there. the good Doink either. You know what, what's funny about that with Meltzer is that uh, he gives the Brett and Owen match uh, four and three quarter stars, and he gives their match at SummerSlam in the Steel Cage five stars. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I I don't know why he didn't give it a five star yeah. yeah, rating. I don't know, I don't know what. They could yeah. have done more, 
But, uh, you know, I mean, look, you start off with, and we'll run through it, one of the most technically sound matches, uh, which in combination tells the story of brother versus brother and the way that they kind of balance the two uh, is just phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's arguably the best opener in the history of WrestleMania with Brett against Owen. And then later on in the evening, you have Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon doing what is in canon viewed as one of the first ladder matches in wrestling history. You've got some other fun moments that I'm sure we'll go through. But what jumped out at me, and this was evident in looking back on it, is this is the first WrestleMania without Hulk Hogan involved. Yep. Yep. And it would strike me that there might be genuine concern about that because Hulk Hogan was arguably the biggest star in the history of wrestling at that point. And WWE did what they could to say, yep, there was a lot of history with WrestleMania. They did some of the flashbacks and we'll talk about a couple of those, but then they transition into putting some of the newer stars on display, the hearts, Michaels, razor, some really good stuff going on there. Jerry Lawler had a really good night on commentary, and I'm sure we'll get into some of his one-liners. Uh, Vince McMahon and his typical over-the-top shtick trying to bring everything home. Some of the celebrities were camp, but some of them were pretty fun. Burt Reynolds trying to steal Shawn Michaels' girl made me <laughs> laugh. That was tremendous. Uh, but no, it's um, this is one of those shows where you know what the highlights are going in in retrospect, and they deliver. Vince didn't love doing like tournament type things a whole lot, but this this kind of a small tournament format, which was you know there were going to be two title matches on this show because of what had happened in the 1994 Royal Rumble. Basically, Vince was getting ready to give Lex Luger the Hulk Hogan push. They turned Lex Luger from 1993 when we talked about him just the other day. He was the narcissist, and now he's made the transition to. Made in the USA Lex Luger Red, white, and blue Lex Luger You know what, and when you look at him on paper he He's really got everything um, He's not a hell of a promo But he can he can kind of give you What you need from a baby face You don't really need like some crazy You know, from like a baby Like you can get a pretty basic promo from him and, and he checks a lot of the boxes That Vince would be looking for He's got a great look, he's got a build, he's big um, And he just, I saw you kind of talking about this the other day, Darren They they really kind of screwed him a lot with the way that they booked him And I, I think, you know, he's not a five-star classic in the ring a lot But for the time, he was fine He, he was going to be, he was able to do enough I mean, enough, just enough at least what Hulk Hogan was able to do You know, those year, um, through his years But he they never got enough behind him I think what happened at SummerSlam 1993 When he won a match by DQ And he's celebrating like he, he just won the title um, that kind of hurt him and and never being able to get it And so what happened was that the 94 Rumble at Which a lot of people don't like the finish and, and the end of it I actually love it I know I'm a Bret Hart guy So this was really like my era now um, And it was a tie They had two fall over the top a rope at the same time uh, Bret Hart and Lex Luger They were the last two They went over together And so it was a real kind of a smart idea for this WrestleMania You get to have you know a couple main events And you also have this feud with Owen and Brett So what they did was they flipped a coin To decide who would face Yokozuna first Brett Hart was going to have to face Owen They couldn't have done it any other way With the booking it had to be this way It had to be with Brett losing first And then winning at the end It just worked out too perfect Set up the contender for Owen I mean there were all, there were some bad matches in this show And then some down spots But they really set this show up Really really well in the coming in the months before Yeah the um, 
the Luger stuff, you know, we could have a lot of fun as we dive into this talking about, you know, Luger. I mean, the way I look at it, uh, I mean, basically Hogan is Cena and Luger is Reigns. I mean, that's, yeah. that's yeah. pretty much what it is before we had Cena and Reigns. Uh, and, and Luger didn't just get, you know, screwed over in WWE. I mean, they screwed him over in WCW. He, he was in the Four Horsemen after being in WCW for like five minutes. Yep. He got this monster push that everybody resented. Then Sting blows his knee out. He all, all of a sudden is a baby face and facing, uh, you know, Flair for the title. I think at, I don't remember if it was Great American Bash or, or, or which WCW pay-per-view it was. It was like a 40-minute match. It was a really good match. Luger ends up getting counted out because he's getting jumped by the four horsemen. Uh, so they screw him over there. They don't. It's put the, the same thing that's followed him forever. Yeah. yeah, forever. Yeah, Flair said he wasn't ready. Then he gets the WWE, and within six months of being in WWE, the guy turns from being this monster heel that Bobby Heenan found to this all-American guy. He, he up until like the day of SummerSlam in '93, he's going to win the title, and he's hot and then, at that point too. He's hot. People are behind yeah, him. He is. And then Vince decides, no, no, I want to stretch this out to WrestleMania. I want to try to keep Luger heated up and and move this to WrestleMania. I mean, the the balloons fell at SummerSlam because Luger was supposed to win. Yeah, like the balloons were supposed to fall on new WWF champion Lex Luger. The balloon still fell after he won by a countout in the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. Completely cools him off. They put him into a feud with Ludwig Borga, if you remember. Yep. And by the time you get to WrestleMania, and and, then, and by the way, the, the story goes from a lot of people, the finish at the Rumble was because Vince still didn't know what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. He didn't know if he wanted Brett. He didn't know if he wanted Luger. He wanted to see how the crowd reacted. By the time you get to WrestleMania, the crowd is completely dead on Luger, and that's the end of him. But I mean, it's the story of his life. I mean, he is always, he gets a monster push right out of the gates. And then they see, okay, well, yeah, he's good. And he's got a nice look and, and, and the work in the ring is fine. But is this really going to be the guy? And they cool off on him. Three words, Darren. We want flair. You sort of <laughs> glossed over it a little bit, but back when Jim heard he of Pizza Hut fame, <laughs> got the job running WCW. His big thing was he didn't get Ric Flair, wanted to job Ric Flair out, make him Spartacus, have him cut his hair. Can you imagine Ric Flair with no hair? Uh, but so Flair left. And in response, the NWA booked Lex Luger against, I believe it was Barry Windham. Please yes. correct me on that if I'm wrong. That's correct. In the steel cage. That's correct. And the crowd knew exactly what was going on. And instead of this being Luger's big coronation from start to finish, you could hear the crowd chanting, we want flair, we want flair, we want flair. Now, there's some stuff with Luger that doesn't sit particularly well with me. He wasn't the world's greatest technician. Yep. He wasn't the greatest promo. He didn't have the silent voice. Every promo he did that you remember was wow. him with this exasperated raspy yell. And that never really took with me because you could tell he was trying to do the Hogan thing, except he didn't have the voice to do the Well, let me tell you something. Da, da, da. His voice was just different. It was raspier. It didn't have the effect that could fill a room, which I realize sounds brazenly stupid. But if we're talking about what separates an upper mid card guy from a main event guy, that stuff matters. 
And there have been enough instances in Luger's career where combinations of terrible booking and lacking that one little piece to push him over the top meant that he was sort of in purgatory. The one big moment that he had after all of this happened at WrestleMania 10 was Nin- he beat Hulk Hogan for the title. 97, right? Episode of Nitro. Yeah. Six days before a pay-per-view. And then they jobbed him at the pay-per-view. Yeah, it was, I, dude, he was huge. It was hot. It was like a clean win, too. He put him in the torture rack. That clean was when. as WCW went. But yeah, yeah, at that time. Out. But yeah, yeah. And he, and you're right. He just, think it's, it's funny. You just went talking it out. He was supposed to be the next Ric Flair and then the next Hulk Hogan. I mean, yeah. talk about getting put in really bad spots. It's always like you don't want to be the guy to have to follow the guy. You want to be the one at, right after that. You know? Yeah. Because then nobody really compares you to that. But he was always going to be compared to Ric Flair and then to Hulk Hogan. And so he just he needed to be booked well. Things need to go right for him. And it always seemed to go the opposite way. And one more little story before we get into the the, the match and we'll, uh, the, the show and we'll go match by match. But I actually was listening to a couple different things and they um, were wanting to swerve people so bad on this show that they actually recorded um, Lex Luger at live events with the WWF championship. Yes. Um, like he had won it at this show just to kind of get that out there and to have some people think that, oh, wow, he's going to win this. He's going to win the, the title here. And so even going into it, a lot of people, like you mentioned, Darren, the, the crowd and everybody was kind of cold on Luger, but the, they were really hot on Brett at the time. And um, and and Vince was still kind of having to be convinced about Brett. And it was like kind of finally, like towards the last minute, he decides to change and he's OK, it's going to be Brett that, that goes over here. And um, it was there's just a, a lot of fascinating things about Luger's like little short run. Uh, it, it wasn't a, a really all that long, but it was. It, it's really interesting when you kind of dive into it. And and one more thing too on this one, um, no Undertaker on this show. Well, um, I was there, of course. Not. Yeah, I yeah, you were there. There's no, we know if, if you're Darren's the curse, there. Darren. There's Wherever no Undertaker. You are, the Undertaker isn't. <laughs> yeah. No? So uh, poor poor Taker. I'm sure he would rather have been not there than dealing with Giant Gonzalez um, again, okay. like he had to be in 1993. <laughs> so uh, he he didn't mind there. And uh, a lot of this was, you know, what this is WrestleMania 10. We are going. Uh, we're going to go through the history of WrestleMania, as Andrew you mentioned. They they show clips through a, of like a little 20 30 second clip all throughout the show of all of the other WrestleManias, and it it's. Does have a coming home again They're back at Madison Square Garden It's a real nostalgic feel um, We get uh, Little Richard singing America the Beautiful Right off the bat And then we uh, announce the commentary team It's Vince, it's Jerry the King I will say that's not like it's a downer Vince is a voice that we remember as a kid But I, I wasn't like I think Jerry kind of grew into the role And he has some good moments here But he sometimes was like like he was like too like Bobby was more of like a cerebral heel. He was like too like playing the heel character sometimes uh, on the commentary table. So I guess like I guess one of my only gripes about this show is maybe that it wasn't like a, a star commentary team either. But I mean Vince was always good for some uh, some fun Vinceisms, and you did get some good stuff from Jerry here and there. Yeah, you did. But like you said in the beginning, he was trying very hard to mm-hmm. be the antagonist, and and. You know, some of his comments felt forced, and he eventually grew into the role. He did, well. yeah. Yeah, he, he did. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'll be able to give you a couple of perspectives from, from this show as we go through it. 
you know, being a 10 year old kid, I was there with two friends and my dad, we had great seats right above where the, where the wrestlers walked out. In fact, in a couple of moments in the ladder match, when it comes out, you could actually see 10 year old Darren with his dad and his two, two friends right over that overhang where the, uh, where the wrestlers came out. And then eventually watching it back and getting that perspective that everybody who watched at home. So, uh, it, it was a really cool experience. Uh, it was a great show. And uh, yeah, I'm pumped to be talking about it. You had mentioned Jerry Lawler. And I think the big thing to note here is he wasn't working with Jim Ross. He was working with Vince. Chemistry is a very real thing. And he and JR had yes. the kind of chemistry that if you could bottle and sell it, you'd be a very rich man. With Vince, not so much. That's when you start getting the Burger King chance. It's a completely different environment. And you get two guys that are painting an entirely different picture with the same tools as what Jr. and the King eventually did. But it winds up being a completely different product. And that's not necessarily a bad thing no. in some respects. There are some instances where Jerry Lawler's reactions really enhance the moment. You talk about how he would constantly antagonize the Hart family. Some of that stuff is pure gold. It's great. Yeah. A couple of good lines near the end of the show as well that I'm sure we'll get into. But you're right. It's completely different. I'm not going to say it was good or it was bad, but it was certainly different from the kind of thing that we would grow accustomed to hearing from the king. Okay, let's get on into it. So uh, we get right off the bat, and we, we're not going to wait long before we get into one of the best matches in the history of uh, of WWF and WWE, even now. I mean, this is no hyperbole when people say this is one of the greatest matches you'll ever see or ever seen. What makes this match so good and... and um, you know, they we get the the packages of of the build, and this was really good too. Is that if you take all of this great build out of it, and this if this was just a match that was like randomly in a tournament in New Japan, and you had two guys that were this smooth in the ring, it would still be like a five star. The with the work rate, with just the work, like how good it was. And then you add all of the emotion, all of the storyline, all the build, the younger brother dynamic. I mean, this was just really great. Owen Hart. Before this run was literally Going to get out of the wrestling business He was not getting pushed very much at all He had had a couple a little bit of a run As a blue blazer and then he was in a tag with Nyhart um, he just wasn't Getting a, a whole lot and He was getting ready to to, to just Pack it in you know I'm done I'm, I'm Going to go change uh, change like Life and Brett kind of got behind him He had some weight with Vince at this time And they he kind of you know, they they laid together, lay they laid out a plan for some storylines, and you know, a lot of this this run was because of Brett, and it all started, you know, back in '93 at the Survivor Series when it was the Hart family, and uh, they were in a Survivor Series match against like it was supposed to be Lawler in the Knights, right? And then it became Shawn Michaels in the Knights, and um, it it. Was a match where Owen was the only one of the hearts That got pinned and that kind of started the feud He was pissed off even though they won the match And it went from there it went to You know Owen wanted to fight Brett But Brett was never going to fight his brother And they were able to reconcile And then they decided they were going to go after the tag team titles At the Royal Rumble They had a match against the Quebecers And then in that match Brett gets hurt um, they end up losing the match They aren't able to get the titles And it and it just pisses Owen off And Owen you know after the match, kicks Brett, whose whose leg is hurt. I mean, this is a great build. He quote unquote kicks his leg out of his leg. We get that famous uh, line from Owen. I mean, this is really really good stuff, and it leads up to this match um, here. And, and I, I mean, right right from the beginning, it's just 
quick paced work ethic. We're seeing things, Darren, that like moves that one Brett and Owen hadn't even really used a whole lot, and we didn't see it all in the company at this time. Like they were definitely knew what they were doing with this match. They wanted this to be like a classic. No, they they did. And speaking to the moves, you know, I, I kept track of them and I and I jotted them down. I mean, right from the get go, you got like a fireman's carry rollover. You got head scissors, two belly to back wrestling takedowns, three kip ups, right into a hammerlock, drop toe holds, uh, a crucifix. You get a belly to belly suplex, a belly to back suplex into a bridge, four roll ups, a small package, a tombstone pile driver. I mean, it's and and I could literally go on and on for a minute. It's literally just a well-calculated technical wrestling match that, oh, by the way, you get the occasional heat of brother versus brother where Owen smacks Brett. And I'll tell you, you heard that around the arena. I mean, that was a hard smack. And then Brett later on returns the favor. You get the pushing and shoving back and forth. Um, and, And Owen, I'll tell you, he had so much heat. I mean, this place was livid for this guy. In this match, I mean, yelling at him, screaming at him, cursing at him. I mean, it was kind of uncomfortable being 10 years old, sitting next <laughs> to your father. Everybody around you is calling this guy an a-hole and dropping <laughs> F-bombs. Or what, and and, and it's, it's kind of weird as a 10-year-old kid. But, I mean, the heat that they had on him uh, was, was just crazy. But And then you get into, you know, some of the other stuff, like the turnbuckle. I mean, Brett goes flying into the turnbuckle once. Owen goes flying into the turnbuckle. You got that one moment kind of in the middle of the match where they reverse each other's sharpshooters where the crowd was really on edge. It was like, oh, and then it reversed, oh, and it reversed again. You know what I mean? They kept building you up and taking you down and building you up and taking you down. You kind of had like false finish after false finish before you had the whole like finisher false finishes that we see now. But, I mean, this entire match just... Is just one technical wrestling move after another, right to the pin, which kind of comes out of nowhere. And then, of course, you get the great Owen Hart move where he just walks right up to Brett, who's on the floor after he beats him, and gives him the middle finger. It was like, awesome. Right in his face. And, and, I mean, the place was just livid. And after the match, you see Brett, he kind of slams his hand on the mat like four or five times, and then he gets up walking around, and he like claps five or six times. And I never knew quite what to what to make of that. I didn't know if it was in character with saying, okay, this happened. I got a bigger job to do later. Or was he just really stoked that the, that he knew the match was insanely yeah, good? Maybe bo- yeah, maybe a little bit of both, right? Maybe a little bit of both, like, yeah. Because but, you're right, yeah. yeah. But it was, I mean, it was phenomenal. The match, watching it in person was phenomenal. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, in person, I didn't realize when, when Owen pinned him, I thought Owen cheated. I thought he had his nope. feet up on the ropes. I didn't think it was a clean finish. And I didn't know that it wasn't that, that it actually was a clean finish until I watched it back uh, on video, you know, months and months later. Darren, you mentioned that you were there with two of your friends. Are you yeah. sure it wasn't 20,000 of your friends? <laughs> because if you watch this match, it is gobsmackingly awe-striking to see how many kids were yeah. chanting at the top of their lungs, let's go, Brett, let's go, Brett. It's, it's the kind of thing you don't hear at events anymore. It, it was completely organic. 
And it showed exactly how much the crowd was behind Bret Hart for everything he had done and for the universal appeal he had to a lot of people within the fan base. He had appealed to the older people who appreciated more technical wrestling. And because he was the good guy that could take a beating, women and children loved him too. And then you get Owen Hart being the little snot-nosed punk little brother. Who Who can't relate to that? It was a tremendous technical match. And then you had Owen rubbing Brett's face in it afterwards. Looking back, it's, it's a little bit painful seeing that this is as good as it was going to get for Owen. And of course we all know how it ended, but, and we'll talk a little bit about the way the night ended with Owen in the aisle, unable to go join his brother. That was magic in and of itself. That should have kickstarted something far bigger for Owen it didn't. We all know how that ended. It's unfortunate. This match, though, it was pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, right after the, there's just like so many little things too. Right after he wins, he looks to the ref just to confirm Owen. He's like, I got the three, right? That was a one, two, three. Like, it was like, I've never beat my big brother like that. You know, like he was, it was just a little small thing that I noticed right away. And I was like, oh, that was great. And it it was so perfect like you mentioned Darren too like what was Brett thinking after the match like looking back at it like there's so many things in the psychology that just make sense because it's like you know what Brett wanted to win this match Owen needed to win this match sure. oh and, yeah. and Brett and Brett wanted to win this match but he needed to win the match later and win the title and and that was the slight difference here you know and so it's like Owen just kind of wanted it a little bit more and, and he gets it, and you could tell that you know he was maybe willing to do like a little bit more of a snide, cheap thing than Brett was, and maybe in, in like throughout the match. But this was just an absolute classic. And I think, and we'll get to Owen, poor Owen, when he, he gives his biggest promo of his life right afterwards. He's got the big loogie on the side of his face yeah. that's gonna become like a, a classic moment that everyone remembers. I think the one. And, and looking back at this over the last you know few weeks as we've been rewatching a lot of these old ones, the one gripe I have, and I have very little gripes about Bret Hart as a worker in particular, is the thing that was always a little bit like inconsistent with his character was the way he covered people. Yeah, he always was so nonchalant with his cover. He never hooked a leg. He never like even like leaned into a cover. And it, I, I mean, he he didn't pin a whole lot of people because a lot of the, his finishes was were, were with the sharpshooter. But it was always so funny because for such a technical wizard in the ring, it didn't make sense that he would be willing to give it away at the cover like that. Yeah, I, I that always drove me nuts about Brett too, being a big Bret Hart guy. There were a couple of things where if you watched Brett religiously and, and he was the star, you know, from the time I was nine to 14 or 15. Yep. So he was my guy. You know, I was right in that wheelhouse. age where He was my guy. But when he used to do that inside turnbuckle elbow, when he hit that elbow, he would come straight down, knees tucked in, straight down, elbow across the, you know, right underneath the chin. When he missed that elbow, he would kind of macho man it, and yep. his lower body would fly off to the side. You could tell. You could tell the moment he left that inside turn. He was going to miss it. Whether he was going to hit it or not. He had to fall a little different. Yeah. yeah he would fall. <laughs> I, so it's just like one of those things that you, by watching so often, that you notice. But you were talking about Owen. I mean, Owen plays the heel great. But I do think that it was really hard for him. And it's because if you know the story of Owen Hart, Owen was one of the most not only respected, 
well-liked people in the locker room because he was a comedian. Yep. He was the prankster in the, the locker river. room. He was the guy that, yeah, he was the jokester, was always pranking everybody and playing jokes. So for him to be this obnoxious, arrogant, obsessive, jealous, Napoleonic little brother who just, who's got blood coming out of his ears had to be really, really hard for him. And I think that's why he struggled at times in his promo, because I think at times during this, this feud, he was trying so hard to be something other than what he really was. And even in the uh, interview after this match that you were talking about, he's, he kind of screws up again where he's going on uh, talking about Brett. And he says, and I'm going to beat you, Brett. Well, yeah, you just did. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like, like that kind of stuff happened with Owen during this feud, because I really think he was kind of taken out of his comfort zone, really having to act that way. Yeah, I, I don't have a whole heck of a lot to add to that much, but I will add one of the stories from Brett's book that stands out in talking about Owen uh, ribbing people. His father was not above that. He prank <laughs> called his father, the legendary Stu Hart once, <laughs> as a local strongman who had a friendly relationship with Stu for a while. And he crank called him saying that he wanted a piece of Stu Hart and that he could try him and whatnot. <laughs> and Brett is in the room and he sees Stu Hart get madder and madder and madder. And you didn't get Stu Hart mad. Okay. Nobody ever did that. Well, his face is crimson. And all of a sudden he looks at the phone quizzically and hangs up. He looks at Brett and goes, eh, it was Owen. <laughs> it's yeah. just tremendous stuff. And that tells you the, the kind of person that Owen was. Nobody had a bad word to say about him. If you can find somebody in any shoot interview anywhere that said something bad about Owen Hart, I'd be very surprised. Even the Ultimate Warrior, in the one shoot interview he did, he praised two people. He praised Owen Hart and he praised The Undertaker. Yeah. And, well, I, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, one other thing I, I'd love to add, and I actually put on Twitter the other night, being a big Brett guy, I, I know loved, you're going, you're right, I and you're right. I love the way Owen put the sharpshooter. It was perfect. Look, it was. He, he would be like, it was like a guy looked like he was about to do a monster squat. Like his legs would be so spaced out and he would be so far cinched into that thing. And, uh, and it looks so difficult the way that he would be so low to the ground, but you know, with nothing other than his feet touching the ground and how far, like the, I, I, I listen, no disrespect to Brett. Again, he was my guy. I thought Owen's sharpshooter was the best sharpshooter I ever saw. Yeah. And I believe that Kevin Owens name Owens is like a, a tribute to Owen. Cause he loved uh, Owen Hart. I think he went with the Owens because that was like his favorite wrestler of all time. So um, really cool. I mean, this, like you mentioned, Andrew, this was Owen's time from right here. He had an unbelievable year. He wins this match. He wins the King of the Ring later. And then he's in the main event of SummerSlam with Brett. And they have an awesome, awesome uh, steel cage match, which is great. And then there's that time. There was one other time in his career when he had a, 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 like an opportunity where it looked like they were going to maybe, I, I, I thought Vince was going to maybe give him a little run. And it was right after Brett left. And he was doing the black heart gimmick And he had a couple matches against Triple H Against Shawn Michaels right when they started DX And he was 
he was hotter than he'd ever been. The crowd was nuts for him because they were still kind of bitter at what had happened with Brett. The crowd was hating Shawn Michaels and 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 uh, Hunter at the time, and he was like, it was almost like he was going to get that push. I think he even had a a title match against Shawn, and they gave him like a couple opportunities where it it was like like a you know dusty finishes where he he looked like he was really going to win. But uh, I, he well, he's awesome. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, well, on top of that, like the new blue chipper was The Rock. Yeah. You know? He beat The Rock for the Intercontinental title in 97. Yeah. You know, people like forget about that. And and I and when I saw that, I thought like you did, wow, you know, the Owen is going to get a monster push. And, you know, you could talk about the fact that moving into those late 90s and early 2000s, you start to get, you know, a lot of talent in as they get away from those ridiculous characters that they had. But I mean, was there a more technically sound wrestler, you know, than Owen in WWF at the time? Probably not. Um, there was really no reason why he couldn't get a push. Uh, and, and I thought that it was coming, as did you. Because, like I said, they gave him a big win over their next big guy, their blue chipper, who they pushed to the moon right away um, with that whole Heart Foundation reunion thing. So, uh, And then the Black Heart, the Nation of Domination. And then it just kind of, they ended up putting him with Jeff Jarrett and back to the Blue Blazer gimmick. And, you know, and that was it. Yeah, and Brett Owen had a couple of other really high-profile moments. He had a five-star match with the Bulldog, probably yep. Bulldog's last great match. It might have been for the European title it was. the tournament they did. Yeah, um, He also was the other guy in the ring with Shawn Michaels when WWE worked their first real edgy program with Michaels selling a concussion. Yes. Owen hit the injury, yeah. and all of a sudden, Michaels was out. And then the Austin, the Austin thing, he broke Austin's yeah. neck with the pile driver. So he was oh, definitely involved boy. in, you know, like, and then he was, he was, he played it. They, they, they worked that in afterwards to like, he's wearing the, I just broke your neck t-shirts and yeah. stuff, you know, like, so he was in the nation of domination for a while at black I mean, he, 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 you forget how long his career was and him and the bulldog, that tag team was good when they re- redid the heart foundation, you know, in 97, they got it. On a heat and then they were like Major faces anytime they'd go to Canada That was awesome so he was around And a part of a lot and you know he goes way back to You know like the blue blazer days in uh In mania six um So yeah I mean it's Great to talk about Owen anytime we get the chance And the opportunity to and I know some of these other Matches we probably won't spend near like you know Just a minute or two on so I would um, certainly Hope not my yes I would I would uh, I I think this was one that that Deserved uh, talking about for a little while and Andrew, you had mentioned some of the clips that we saw. So they were showing clips from every WrestleMania through the years. They and I was always, you know, I remember being wondering at this Romania when I was watching it live. And every time I'd watch back, I kind of would forget and say, "Are they going to show the Hulk Hogan clips?" Because you know Hulk Hogan's not a part of the company now. And they ended up showing a couple of them. They they couldn't you guys couldn't get around showing Hulk in at least one of these WrestleMania clips. And so WrestleMania one was uh, you know just showing all the pomp and circumstance and all the celebrities and. And they showed uh, the the body slam match between uh, Andre and, and Big John Stud, and then uh, WrestleMania two. They showed how it was at you know three different venues, and uh, and and they showed the the battle royal with the the football players and the wrestlers. And then we get a really weird segment where uh, what is it? It's Cy Masterson uh, from the Hair Star, Club for Men. Sky Cy Sperling, who actually Cy Sperling, yeah, that's who just, it was. Yeah, he actually just passed away six weeks ago. Oh wow. That's yep. crazy. I didn't even see that. So Cy Swirling comes in from the Hair Club for Men. He's introduced. He talks about his newest project and his newest creation. And it's the Fink, Howard Finkel, with a full head of hair here. Uh, it looked kind of goofy to see the Fink. But uh, he uh, 
He sets us up for our next match. It's Bam Bam versus uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and Luna Vachon versus Doink and Dink. And this was not Matt Bourne Dink. This was Ray Apollo Doink. This was Ray Apollo Doink. And Doink was now a good guy. He's become a face. And this was when he wasn't. I mean, Matt Bourne was excellent as Doink. He was really creepy as the as the evil Doink. And uh, when he would pop back up, he did a really good job with Doink. This wasn't, you know, the one of the better showings. And this was really just like an elongated squash match. It, it's kind of funny because they literally they really wouldn't do this at this time in WWF, but this was like a heel getting his comeuppance on a face who had kind of tormented him for uh, for a while here, and Bam Bam gets the win. It goes about six minutes. Bam Bam and Luna uh, go over here. Yeah, I'm a, Bam Bam. I always liked. I mean, a really agile big guy who would do things that you wouldn't expect a big guy to do. He's got a big drop kick in here that's you know really cool. Um, you know, there's a couple of funny spots. I mean. At one point, you know, Dink jumps off the top rope going after Luna. He misses her by like 10 feet. Um, you know, Bam Bam tries to get Dink. That's kind of a big storyline throughout the uh, throughout the match. There's another point where you kind of see a, uh, a DDT from, from Doink that you really didn't see too much of that style of DDT mm-hmm. at this point. It was the kind of DDT that you're kind of used to seeing now where the, the guy who's performing it, really elevates himself up in the air, you know, kicks his legs out. And he's kind of like hanging up in the air for four or five seconds and then kind of spikes the guy down. You know, it was, it was a, a different DDT than we were kind of accustomed to seeing back then. Then you get that moment where Doink tries to side suplex Bam Bam and Bam Bam like just kind of falls on his head uh, where, you know, it could have been the end of the match there. But yeah, I mean, you get Luna Vachon who, uh, you know, obviously Mad Dog Vachon, her father, I mean, she had been around. Uh, for a long time, she bounces back and forth between a lot of different uh, territories, uh, WCW, uh, a couple of places down south as well. So, uh, in fact, it, uh, I, the, the one funny story I could tell about Luna Vachon is that uh, she actually recommended somebody to WWF to get hired. I forget who it was. But it put her on the map to, with WWF themselves. And when they decided if they're like watching some tape of her, that they were interested to try to hire her, they couldn't find her. And, <laughs> um, you know, her family didn't know. She, they knew she was in Florida, but they didn't know where. And WWF actually had to hire a private investigator to locate her to get her <laughs> to come to WWF, uh, which is a pretty Great. wild story. So, yeah, that's one of those cool tidbits. Other than the match itself, you know, that's that's really all I could say about it. Bam Bam Bigelow was ahead of his time. If he comes around five or ten years later, he becomes a gigantic megastar, and I genuinely believe that. Yeah, I do Even too. In his current iteration, he had a main event with Lawrence Taylor, and that match was pretty darn good. Better than it had any right to be. Yes, and he was initially going to be a big star in the WWF in the late 80s. 87 but... Survivor Series. Him and yes. Hogan are at the end of that Survivor Series match. He's the last one in the match, and he's going. He It's like him against three of the big heels. Yes. He eliminates two of them, and then it's just him and Andre, and then Andre eliminates him, and it kind of sets up you know WrestleMania 4 um, go, going forward. But yeah, you're, you're right. And it, depending on who you listen to, he may have had a bad attitude at the time. He was tagging with Hogan, and that's a lot for a young guy. It might have gone to his head a little bit. He came back with a different attitude. He worked a bunch of very good matches with Brett. And 93, after, King of the Ring, yeah. yeah. And even after he left WWF, he went to ECW. He was the guy who went through the ring with Taz. He went to yeah. WCW, had some pretty good matches there, even being as far past his prime as he was. And here you get a pretty good sense of 
the fact that this guy, he's a tall dude, he's a big dude, he's a wide dude, and he can move. I'm a sucker for big guys that can move, and anybody that can do a flying headbutt like that at that size, they uh, they had a big, did a good thing with Bigelow, and he was able to do a lot, but it just seems like the wrong era for him. And yep. he was able to get a win here. He got his WrestleMania moment, if we're going to use terms like that, the next year with Lawrence Taylor. This match, though, the less said about it, the better. I thought it went way too long. You mentioned six minutes. A two-minute job would have been absolutely fine. I agree, yeah. And by the um, way, Bam Bam Bigelow went to WCW in the late 90s. His first match in WCW was against Goldberg. Yeah. That's and he was given surprising. like, yeah, like he was given sort of like a main event push at like towards that era. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and yeah, he'll be in the main event of WrestleMania next year in 1995. And we, we then start to see this Bill Clinton imposter, uh, like impersonator show up in the crowd and the IRS is sitting behind him. Jack Tunney's in there. They, they make a mention about talking about money and he kind of, I don't want to talk about any money. I'm just here to watch the show. You know, it was just, it was just really bad. He popped up a few times in the crowd. Uh, we get the clip of WrestleMania three. I think this was the one where they realized like, we can't not show Hogan in this one. Like this one was all about Andre, uh, Andre and Hogan. So they show this, the, the face off between the two of them. Then we get a, a match that, you know what? It, it on paper, I'm sure this match looked good, and I think I don't think it was a bad match. Obviously, like logistically, it just doesn't work out very well. We get a false count anywhere match between Macho Man Randy Savage and Crush, and it's bummer. This is the, the the final WrestleMania for Macho Man. We don't see a whole heck of a lot of him um, too much after this. A little more, but watching this, one of the things that really bummed me out was just thinking about how. So many wrestlers who had the, their um, issues and their problems with Vince And then they would go to WCW or they'd go elsewhere It seemed like most of them came back at some point Even if it was like past their prime for a Hall of Fame induction Or you know, come back out on WW, on Raw one night and, and you know, wave But we just, unfortunately because he passed away uh, early We never got that with Macho Man We never got him to come back to the WWF or WWE to get in the Hall of Fame and like have his induct- induction speech until after he was gone. We never got man. I and I was just thinking about he he still had maybe three good years left in him after this when he went to WCW. Like he did some really good stuff with Paige. He had some really good feuds. Could you imagine like more of Macho Man Brett for like a, a strong a long in feud to put over Brett to put over Sean, which is something he had wanted to do for a while. I mean, how about even getting into the like the Rock Stone Cold days against Macho Man? Like those would have been a lot of fun. Just watching this kind of bummed me out seeing him go because he was one of my favorites and he did a good job to do the best with this match that he could. The reason that this match was a little different was it was a false count anywhere match where once you were pinned. The match wasn't over You had 60 seconds to get back in the ring And if you couldn't then the match was over So it was funny I, I was reading something Or I was listening I think it was like the Laps Fan Podcast and they had said this was a False count anywhere but the ring match Because it doesn't right. make any sense to Pin anyone in the ring which we see Macho Man Actually do later on I think it was just one of those things where looks good on paper Sounds good but like every time there's 30 seconds or 40 seconds of no action I'm sure the crowd starts to get a little like anxious They're wondering what's going on C- Creative finish, he ties up Crush 
and, and he's able to get back to the ring So this wasn't bad It just we, we could see why they wouldn't do any Falls County Warriors match like this Matches like this moving forward yeah, I mean, the you know, when he drops the elbow and he's got to push him out of the ring to pin him. It's just you know, silly. It just does. Yeah, it just doesn't work. And then, like, they go to the back and, oh, look, there's this giant, you know, I don't even know what it is, uh, lift thing that happens to be there that I could tie, you know, crush his foot to. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, these two had a lot of heat against each other. There was, there was like, a, a pretty good feud between the two of them. And you kind of see that from the beginning when when – uh, you know, they're, they're going at it. You know, Savage runs out after him right away. By the way, I mean, when Savage's music hit, monster pop at the place. Huge. Like, still, yep. yep, still monster, monster pop. And it's one of the things, and, and, and I think, you know, you touched on it quite a bit, you know, and I think it's more so than the match. I think it's the thing I, I would like to talk about more is that it, it's a damn shame that this was his last pay-per-view yeah. in WWE, WWF, because he did have a lot more to give. And this is one of the things that bothered me about Vince, where he didn't, it's like he didn't know how to do two things at once. He didn't know how to hold on to the old star while simultaneously passing the torch to his new generation. Like he He just, he didn't use them the way that every other territory or company did to like get over your new stars. Exactly. And, 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 and it wouldn't have been difficult. Savage would have been fine doing. You know, he, if you he, told Savage you're going to work with Brett for four months, What's or Sean. Yeah, or Sean. I mean, he would have been fine with that. And you could see it when he goes to WCW. I mean, you know, I mean the stuff that goes on with the the three faces of fear, and he's got the stuff going on with Flair. He even wins the the title in that ridiculous three ring battle. Yeah, war, the, the World War. World War. Thing. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and, and then he got the NWO. I mean. He's got like a five. No, he's, it's like a six or a seven year run in WCW after you know this ends, and it, it always bothered me. He was forty two. I understand he wasn't the Macho Man of WrestleMania three. That's fine, but he was still better than eighty five percent of the guys yeah. that you had in the locker room. And it, and it, and to this day, it pissed me off that nineteen ninety four was the end of Savage in WWE because. They definitely could have gotten three, four, even five more years out of them. The biggest pop at WrestleMania 10 came courtesy of Bret Hart. The second biggest pop came courtesy of Randy Savage walking to the ring. I feel like that illustrates a lot of things right there and bears out a lot of things that we're talking about. This match was nothing special. I hate any sort of last man standing match. It just, to me, the variant seems hokey. And you mentioned, oh, there's a harness back there. Guess I'll use that. How <laughs> Coincidentally. I mean, it, going off on another tangent, but that's part of the reason why I hated the Edge Orton match from WrestleMania, which I'm sure Gino will talk about at length or has already talked about. But this was a decent brawl. It didn't play to Savage's strengths. This wasn't what you bring Randy Savage out to do. This seemed like a courtesy thing. Hey, let's get him a payday. We kind of like Crush a little bit. Let's see what Crush can do. And it's not like the match was bad, but when you think of the things that Randy Savage could have been doing instead of this, it's mind-boggling that after all of that, Vince decided, eh, okay, let's use Savage here. There were just there were a lot of things that he could have been better used for. Ooh, we get uh, some more Todd Pettengill talking to the uh, 
imposter Bill Clinton um, And then IRS is there and they Said he's going to work things out with him I mean it was just IRS and DiBiase Were kind of in the box with him And they were talking uh, We Then they show the fan fest from the weekend And they show Macho celebrating with the fans This was kind of like one of the first Like kind of the beginning of the WrestleMania That we now know Right Darren with like a lot of the fan access stuff yeah. And yeah. things like that It's kind of like the template for you know the the big kind of WrestleMania week weekends they do now. Yeah, I mean if you think about it, so WrestleMania eight to WrestleMania ten is only two years. It's like two different companies. It is. I mean, you think about you know you got Hogan, Sid, Savage, Flair, Piper with the big yeah Warrior with the big run in Piper. You know you think Jake about the, the Snake. Guys, yeah, yeah. You think about the guys at WrestleMania eight. That are the guys and that are headlining the show. Virtually none of them are at WrestleMania. No. 10. And it's two years. It's not an eternity. It's two years. I mean, Roman Reigns has been main eventing WrestleMania now for 10 years. You know, it's uh, I'm being sarcastic, but I'm five, just six. Yeah, but yeah. Say, I mean, two years, it's like a totally different company. Let's not forget Goldberg either. I mean, yeah. it's not like he's some, you know, brand new, fresh faced kid that WWE's just decided to push. Yeah. So we, we then get um, uh, WrestleMania 4 with uh, Randy Savage, Macho winning his first title. So a lot, it, it was good placement right there uh, after Randy winning that match. And then it was really weird. The WWF at this point, they were so hot and cold and on and off with their women's division. You know, they would just kind of like pop up and then they would go full bore with the women's division for like six months. And then we literally wouldn't see them for a year or two years or three years sometime on any pay-per-view on any show. But we did get a Laundra Blaze versus Lalani Kai here. And Lalani Kai from way back when, from the, the early WrestleMania, WrestleMania 1. Yep. Um, Blaze was the babyface champion uh, She went on to be Medusa In WCW a lot of people remember that Moment where she throws the the WWF women's championship In the trash can She you know this match only went 320 It wasn't like it was long or anything um, It was you know th- there's going to be some Sloppy spots but uh, Alondra Blaze did have some Ahead of her time offense And she was willing to take some chances For a female like she was legitimately one of the better female wrestlers out there at this point. She was pretty good. wasn't like this was a great match or anything, but um, we it was like I said, it was just kind of weird the way they would would kind of get behind the women and then stop with the women. Yeah, and Leilani Kai, like you said, I mean, lost the women's championship at WrestleMania one to Wendy Richter. So yeah, and, yeah. and she just by the way, this is like her first match back in WWF since like, then like, in like, ten years. Like, yeah, it's like oh, he, okay, we're just bringing in Leilani Kai for a women's title match at WrestleMania. When she walked out, I had no idea who this person was. Yeah. You know, because at WrestleMania one, I was literally one, so I I had never seen Leilani Kai at this point. Uh, Alundra Blaze was a good worker. You know, she she could definitely move in the ring. Uh, Jerry, to me, Jerry Lawler's most edgy comment throughout the night, and there were a few of them. But with Alundra Braze, they're talking about comparing these two women's looks. And Jerry <laughs> Lawler says, oh, yeah, Alundra Blaze. She's got a million-dollar body and a 10-cent face. He just ripped her for oh being ugly God. all the time. Can, yeah. can you imagine somebody saying that today? I mean, <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, I, I took that away from it. Um, you know, I mean, she does that nice bread suplex to win. You know, it's fine. I mean, nothing special about the match. It's kind of there to... 
do what it's supposed to do. And like you said, Alundra Blaze would just kind of pop up like every three, four months, have a title match somewhere, you know, just kind of held on. I don't even know how long she held on to the title, but I feel <laughs> yeah. like I feel like she was the women's champion for like four years at this point. Yeah. Alundra Blaze, Medusa, whatever you want to call her, she was tough. You look at some of the bumps that she took against not just Leilani Kai, but looking further and looking at some of her Japan work against the likes of Akira Hokuto and Bull Nakano. Yeah, those were some hard hitting matches. And that was stuff that was so far ahead of its time. And because of it wasn't really appreciated for what it was. And then you look at Medusa in the latter days of WCW, and it's so much of a caricature. And and all you have to do is take one look at her to see exactly what I'm talking about. But going to what Darren said, if Alundra Blaze is that ugly, like Lawler must have been cross-eyed or something. I know. It was funny. And I understand Lawler was trying to get over as a heel. But that goes to what we were talking about earlier. Kind of forcing it. Maybe he was trying a little too hard here. Yeah. Um, And Alondra gets the win at at 3 minutes and 20 seconds. She hit a Hurricane Rana, and then she hit her Jumran suplex after. So, yeah, some some strong offense for her for for the time. Uh, Uh, Before we, we move on. I, either of you two know what she did after she was done with professional wrestling? No. I have no she idea. Drove, she drove monster trucks. Really? Like 15 years. Oh, that's she's great. A, she's a legitimate badass. She is. And she'll talk trash online to people nowadays. Like, if anyone gets in her way, she you're right. She just, that's her. Like, she she's just a tough, a tough chick. Like, she, and she'll tell you exactly how she feels. Um, we then get WrestleMania 5 uh, recap. It focuses on the Piper Downey segment. Um, and then when Vince starts talking this way, you know who's coming out. Uh, Somebody's going to rock the house. I can tell you that. <laughs> it's like, you know, that men on a mission are, are coming out. And um, this was Mabel and Mo, and they're with Oscar, and they're rapping as they come out. And uh, Mabel later was, you know, King Mabel, and then he was Viscera. And you know what? This isn't much of a match, you know. This is seven fourteen, and it and and they were like a good, a fun babyface team at the time because they would come out and they would they would kind of get the crowd into it. A lot of the kids would like them and and chant and clap with them. Um, Mabel, you know, was always deceivingly athletic. He could kind of pull something out that you wouldn't expect. Like he came out of with like a back spin kick at at one point um, in this match and. It ended up being a a disqual a, a count out at seven minutes and fourteen seconds, and uh, men on a mission win by count out. But the Quebecers are still the champs. This was the Quebecers, uh, Jacques Quebec, and uh, and um, Pierre. Yeah. And Pierre was actually Jacques. We knew from you know Rougeau. Uh, he was in the Rougeau brothers, and then Pierre was actually in a couple of years. Actually, it's like a year. He becomes the pirate, Jean Pierre Lafitte. He has like a pretty good match with Bret Hart on one of the In Your House uh, pay per views. And uh, he kind of floats around for a little while. But both of these guys could go. They were really like legends in, in Canada. And in fact, uh, Rougeau has this like legendary match years later in WCW with Hogan when he like pins Hogan clean at a house show in Canada that's like never aired anywhere. Um, but what it's funny to think about because Johnny Polo's with them, and that's uh, Johnny Polo, the future Raven. 
remember me? Remember Raven? Yeah, he has a, a good run in WCW for a while as a US champ, and then he has a good run in ECW. So, not, nothing special in this match, but just kind of some fun things to look back on. Yeah, it's it's so weird to see Raven outside as John Polo, knowing yeah. what Raven eventually you know becomes. And you know, if, if look, if, I mean, well, we all have time on our hands now. If you're a wrestling fan and you didn't watch a lot of stuff other than WWF in like the '90s, go back and watch the feud between Raven and Sandman in ECW, um, and some of the stuff that they did with like Sandman's family and like the the mind oh, games my. that were played. Oh man, was it good? I mean. Honestly, if you if you say to me list some of the best feuds of the '90s, that would be one of like the first two that comes to mind about how good it was. Um, but yeah, so just something to throw out there. Uh, I know I know Andrew's going to probably want to chime in. The one the other thing that I'll mention about this match: why are they celebrating with the belts after the match? I like, know. What is that? Like I didn't like I don't even understand the point of it. Like they're all celebrating. It's like the Luger thing again. It is. I you know? hated it and, when they were. And, and my father, my father looks at me. And he goes, "Dad, I thought you can't win the belts with a count out." And I told him, "Like you, you can't. can't." And he's like, they don't. So "What are these?" He's like, "So what are these idiots doing?" <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> it's just like the logical person was like, "Come on, this doesn't make any sense." Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just another one of those things. I don't know if it was trying to get the crowd into it, you know, or whatever. You know, Mo couldn't do a whole lot. Mabel would pull off a couple of things, but even that spinning heel kick, if you watch it closely, it's basically a guy that just kind of gets a few inches off the ground and, and as he's falling to the side, you know, throws a leg up that, that hits the guy in the face. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, there's just not much of a match here, but yeah, I mean, that's the one thing when I watched back and I went, oh my God, I forgot Raven, Johnny Polo. Go ahead, Andrew. I know, I know you got to have something good with Raven. Okay. I am going to start with the segment before this and I'm going to end with the segment after. The segment before this is the one where Burt Reynolds... Okay, gl- I'm like glad. I was going to go back in time yeah. if I did. So thank you for mentioning and, this. And, and that was hysterical. <laughs> it was great. You can tell there are some celebrities that just get what they're supposed to do, and Burt Reynolds got it. All he had to do was show up and be Burt Reynolds. That's probably the easiest yeah. money he ever made in his entertainment career. Now, going to this match, Jerry Lawler has one of his best lines of the evening. He says... Mabel's huge. I heard when he was a baby, he had to be baptized at SeaWorld. Yeah. <laughs> and when good. I heard that, I about fell off my couch laughing my butt off. And one, yeah. I stayed laughing my butt off because men on a mission could not work. And it was laughable watching them try. And then later in the match, the big spot is the Quebecers the setting suplex. up a double suplex. They wind up getting the double suplex. And you see the guy that would eventually turn into the badass junkie Raven standing on the outside, looking like a male cheerleader going nuts over the Quebecers doing a double suplex. Seriously, if you haven't seen this match in a while, if you're an ECW fan and you're a completist, go watch this match and try to watch that spot with a straight face, given how much they focus on Johnny Polo, a.k.a. Raven. My goodness, is that funny. Now, the segment after this, I'm going to actually take the lead on this because I noticed this and it was fascinating to me. Go for it. The segment after this is the WrestleMania Six retrospective. Gino, you mentioned them not shying away from Hulk Hogan. Well, 
there was one guy they did shy away from and they promoted him as little as humanly possible. And it's the guy that beat Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania six, the ultimate warrior warrior, of course, had been fired by the WWF twice. There may have been a lawsuit going on at some point. There most likely was because warrior and the WWF slash WWE were suing each other for the better part of two decades after this. But warrior is mentioned once in that entire retrospective. They don't show the match. They don't show the pinfall. They focus on Hogan presenting both the world and the intercontinental title belts. And Monsoon's voiceover talks about how, and this drives home the point that anyone can be beaten. Warrior is mentioned once. It's a burial in the truest sense of the word if you know what you're looking for. And if you're somebody out there that gets a kick out of Vince's and Vince's direction and the things that he's mad about, watch that. You're going to see what I'm talking about. The only thing on the show as we get set for the the next match and it's uh, Rhonda Shear comes out and, and and Andrew had mentioned she was in that backstage st- segment with Burt Reynolds who man this was just a weird time for Burt Reynolds because he was one of the biggest stars if not you know the biggest star on the planet um, at different points in his life and at this point he was just kind of kind of cold I'm sure that's kind of why he, he accepted the payday here at WrestleMania and came in but as you mentioned he was he was really funny in here he was good in a couple segments and then even later uh when he's doing the ring announcing he's not you know he's kind of funny and he ju- he does bring like a especially looking back now as he's kind of had a rejuvenation of his career it feels like he is a bigger star um looking back um so Ronda Shear comes out she's the guest timekeeper Donnie Wahlberg of New Kids on the Block who at that point were not New Kids on the Block they were NKOTB Bay Bay, and they were uh, they were trying to go edgy with a little like harder t- uh, tint to them. Um, Mister Perfect is the guest referee, which is really cool. Mister Perfect is huge at this point. I don't know if he's like a little big or jacked or whatever, but he looks big in that ref um, like onesie, uh, whatever single like whatever he's wearing, the big pants, and it's just a kind of an absurd uh, referee outfit that he has on. Um, nonetheless, we get all these intros. Uh, here comes Yokozuna with Jim Cornette and Mr. Fuji. They have him weighing in at 568 pounds at this point. And the only thing I thought was weird was why not have this match like second? Yeah. Or like right after Brett, right early on, give Yoko a little more time to recover. Because that was my my real gripe. And and then like a lot of people that you you talk to or that you when you look back at this show is that it, Yoko was really in his head about having to work twice. I think. I think you could see it in both of his matches too. Like in this one in particular, it was a bad match, the Yoko Luger match. Um, it, you know, they were able to weave in the perfect storyline to kind of have it at least, you know, make a little more sense. But it was not good. I think he was worried about having to come back later in the night and then work again against Brett, who was going to be like more of a technical guy and maybe ask a little more out of him. And it just. Neither of his matches, and and I'm not really against Yoko. I thought Yoko has some some really high moments, and he has some matches and and some definite moments. You know, his crescent kick and his athleticism was really good. But this was not a great night for him, having to work twice, and he just didn't really give his all in, in either. Yeah. So a, a few things we talked about: the two biggest pops of the night being Brett and Savage. The next two biggest pops of the night are not wrestlers that are competing on the card the next two biggest pops of the night were by far 
the two guest referees. Yep. Uh, you know, Piper later and perfect. When, he, when, when Donnie Wahlberg says, Mr. Perfect. Perfect. The, the, place, <laughs> the place blows up. I mean, and I even jumped out of my chair. Whoa, perfect's back, you know. And then, you know, you think, all right, well, you got perfect in there. Yeah, he was a heel, but you kind of get the feeling that he's going to probably help Luger. That was like when you're 10 years old, you see perfect. All right, well, he's not going to, you know, screw over Luger. So that swerve actually, you know, ended up being pretty cool from a storyline standpoint. Regarding Yoko, if you watch the match, he starts off really fast. Uh, sells a lot of big things that Luger does. He does that one sell job where Luger punches him and he and he falls hard, like out the ring through the ropes. He takes like uh, you know off the top rope. Luger hits him with a high cross body. Like the first couple of minutes of the match are pretty good, and then it's like Yoko realizes, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop. Like yeah. I I can't I can't keep this pace up, and the match slows down dramatically, and you get a lot of these. You know, uh, uh, trap. You know, I don't even know what that that move is called, where he's got like his knuckles into Luger's trap, where he does that like four times, and it's so bad because at one point Luger is literally sitting in the ring, like a little kid would be sitting on the floor watching TV with his legs out, you know, just sitting straight up, and and Yoko's got like his knuckles into his trap, and Luger's not selling the damn thing. anything. It, he's like, like a little he's got a little bit of that face because he knows he's gonna lose you know he knows yeah. tonight's not his night it's you know like, it's like he's just hanging out at the beach like he ain't feeling a thing and and yoko's got like this grimace on his face like like oh i'm digging into this guy and luga's just kind of chilling you know where's my drink with my umbrella you know hanging out and that really bothered me watching this match back was that luger just looks like he's not interested at all um which is probably true it makes a lot of sense. And look, I, I feel bad for Luke. I really do. Because, you know, he got the push and, and then he got, you know, completely destroyed. And I remember there's a great shoot with Jim Cornette talking about Luger and, and what went on between SummerSlam 93 and WrestleMania. Where going into SummerSlam, Cornette just assumed that Luger was winning that match based on everything that they had done up until that point. And... All of the Cornette, who gives you know some of the greatest promos you'll ever see, all of his promos were geared towards Luger winning that match. Yep. And he says after he Vince pulls him aside, like the day before SummerSlam, when he goes and he tells him Luger's not going over, Cornette's like, "What are you talking about? Like yeah. for the last month, I've been giving promos like Luger's gonna win." And I think at one point he even like referred to him as like a. You know, if he don't win this match, he's a plate full of piss or something like that. Yeah. Like, and he and he ended up accidentally burying the guy, the guy. with the promo. Yeah. You know? But uh, but yeah, the swerve at the end is cool. Uh, you know, you get you you you're supposed to get the Luger perfect feud, which of course doesn't happen because perfect gets hurt again. But yeah, that, that's my take on the whole thing. It's a real. There's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here with Luger. That as a ten-year-old kid, I did not realize that watching it back as I got older really makes this whole thing rather interesting. Okay, I let Darren go a little bit. I have feelings on this match. <laughs> I have feelings on the way WrestleMania tens two title matches were booked. When the guy who gets the biggest pop in the entire match is the guy wearing the stripes, 
That's how you know you're going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. It was true at the Garden in WrestleMania 10. It was true at the Garden again in WrestleMania 20 when Steve Austin came out to ref Goldberg and Lesnar. Perfect gets a huge pop, justifiably so. The man's a legendary worker, can work face or heel. Easy to see how someone could think, oh, he's going to be out here to help Luger. We'll get Luger bread to end the night. Yay. The problem with this match, Yokozuna and Lex Luger, at this point, were both capable of having matches ranging from decent to very good. But there's a catch. They both need to be led. They need a partner. They need to be in the ring with someone like, oh, I don't know, one of the guys wearing pink to, (laughs) to lead them through to that kind of a match. And that's not a knock on them as workers. You get guys like that, and they're reflections of the people they're in the ring with. In this instance, one of them had to lead. Nobody did. And as a result, I think you can make the argument that this is one of the worst matches in the history of WrestleMania, especially given the match that comes two matches later, the match that came to start the card. This was horrible. And Darren, I don't know, you definitely remember this, actually, but it certainly sounded like there were some bullshit. Yep. That was one of the first times I remember hearing it at WWF. Bullshit shit. And that was during the rest hold. And my goodness, watching it was a chore. It was laborious. You could tell Luger knew he was jobbing. You could tell Yokozuna was trying to preserve himself. And the more I watch WWE from this period, the more I ask myself the question, why did we need Yokozuna as the top heel in the company? Yes, he was a spectacle sort of guy. Yes, for a guy his size, he could do some things. But my goodness, you look at some of the other guys that they had right there. There. My goodness, turn Luger heel. Yep. Make it so that he slowly simmers and snaps. And and you got him against Brett. Exactly. It's perfect. You know, I mean, look at Razor Ramon, the guy that could play face or heel, have a good match with pretty much anybody. Look what he was able to do two matches after this. We even talked about Macho is still there. He could be like the older statesman heel again where he's, you know, I've been there. I'm better than you. There's so many guys there. And yet. And and I and like I said, I'm a Yoko fan overall, but I think he had his run. It it you know, he had a good ninety-three. He got a, he, his matches, his the work ethic match against uh, Brett at Mania was not bad. Against Luger at SummerSlam was much better than this one. It 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 was just it felt like when they announced his weight too, you could see he was getting bigger and he stopped caring and he wasn't 500 anymore. Now he's up to 560 and then he's going to get to over 600 later. And it's just, I'm with you. It was, it was like he was this, this, this was at least the right time to get the belt off of him at the very least yep. is what we could say for them. Yep. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm hard on Yoko in his, in the right place. He's fine. I actually dig the main event match that he had with Brett. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But him being the top heel, to me, made no sense. I hate the fact that they had to do all this stuff with Yoko as champion. There were eight or ten different ways they could have done this that I think could have come off better and still ended the night with Bret Hart as the face champion reigning supreme. I don't get why this match had to be a thing. It was awful. 
and you got perfect and Luger potentially starting a feud. And yeah, oh, that looks like it's going to be kind of interesting. Oh, wait, Mr. Perfect's hurt, and we're not going to see him until he shows up in WCW a little while later as an active competitor. And at that point, he's a mid-carder, maybe has some personal demons he's working through, and he's a shell of his former self. This match sucked. 1442. Just yeah. way too long. I mean, if, if Yoko's working twice, just give us half of this, honestly. Especially if it's going to be a DQ. Give us like seven minutes. It's more about the angle afterwards. They're tying back to Luger and Perfect, who had a, a match at Mania 9 where Luger knocks him out after the match and he cheats and wins. So there was like, there was some at least of a tie back. And then afterwards, they're, they're kind of going at each other. But I, I'm with you. This, was, this just wasn't great. And I'm glad that um, we kind of were able to move forward. From this let, let me ask Let me ask a couple of questions So uh, by the way on the bullshit thing Yes completely happened because I started Saying it and my father gave me like a Whack on the leg and said, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, That's great That, actually, that is that great actually had, and, I, and I remember saying to him but my friends are saying to him, He goes I'm not their father and Okay that's, <laughs> you know, No problem uh, but on the serious note So a couple of things number one The road to this Scenario was it took so many different winding and, and weaving different ways to get here because originally Hogan was supposed to job to Brett at SummerSlam in yep. 93. Yep. Yep. And Hogan refused to do it. Um, and he'd you know, rather he, lose to Yokozuna. Yeah. He would rather lose to the big massive heel. And he was, I remember there, there there's a, a, a shoot on this where he was, at uh, I forgot where it was where he was at uh, some kind of an event talking about putting guys over, and he like made the comment of yeah name one guy that I was afraid to put over, and somebody in the crowd shouts out Bret Hart, and he <laughs> says and he says into a microphone it wasn't his time yet brother he wasn't the guy yeah. it wasn't his time talking <laughs> about yeah you know okay so now we get through the Hogan thing. Now, you get to this point where uh, for months they didn't know who was going to be the guy to get the belt. Let me ask this. Could they have done it where Luger beats Yoko and then loses? And, and then loses. Could they have pulled that off or would that would that have been a bigger problem? I think they could have done that yes. because there's a lot about Luger that screams face, all-American, whatever, da-da-da-da-da. Put Luger over Yoko at the Rumble turn Luger heel, turn him back into the vain guy that he came in as and that a lot of people saw him as from his time with the Four Horsemen. Yep. I, he's a natural heel. Yep. And you could tell that even WCW a couple of years later, one of the quirks with his character that I absolutely loved was when he was tagging with Sting, he would slap the hands of fans when Sting was looking. When Sting was distracted, nope, no time yeah. for any of this. It was great. Two-dimensional, yeah. I yeah. love that. And Luger, to me, always struck me as far more effective as a heel than as a face. As a face, I always thought it was forced and it wasn't organic. Let guys be themselves. And if you read Luger's autobiography, which, to be fair, is not a great autobiography, but the one thing that shines through is in the first 80% of that book, Lex Luger was not a good human being and he, him playing himself, I feel, and getting his comeuppance by the way of Bret Hart would have been a better program, would have been a better match for Luger. And I think Hart would have risen to the challenge of getting a great match out of him 
especially given the tensions that he had with Ric Flair, who also worked great matches with Lex Luger. I think Hart would have seen that as a contest, as a challenge, and I think that would have been really cool. Why, why didn't Luger ever do the torture rack in WWE? I don't know. It would have been great. And I, it would have been it would have been great, especially as a face. I think people would have really gotten behind it. Yeah. It, it, it would have been fun at the time. And uh, yeah, this was just a bummer because I think they could have gotten more out of Luger than they did. Um, you know, they oh, if, without saying no doubt about it. And like Andrew said, it would have worked where maybe you turn him here and then you got this heel Luger and then he's mad because maybe Owen gets a shot next and he just kind of keeps building up as a heel. And then early 95, you know, you can have him as a heel. It just, it just would have been nice to, 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 if he would have been treated and built a little bit better, a little bit differently here. Um, in WWE at this time. Okay. So yeah, I mean, any any we uh, it's kind of a bummer because we don't see a whole bunch more of Luger. It, he's a big player in the Monday Night Wars moving forward when he leaves from from WWE uh, to WCW. And in fact, I think in next year's WrestleMania, he's in a tag with the Bulldog, the um, Allied Power, the Allied, yeah. Yeah, which is like a really nondescript tag that kind of felt like it was going to be something big, but it didn't really go f- more, much more than that. He had a little thing with the 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 Ted DiBiase and the Million Dollar Corporation for a while, and Tatanka heel Tatanka. But yeah, we just it just you know he didn't get he he was much better when he returned to WCW. And you mentioned the the point Andrew that was like his the probably the the career highlight for him that big Nitro. Win uh, over Hogan where he He had it for a nice little week run um, But yeah that was um, You know he's a polarizing guy He's someone we could probably have a whole podcast just talking About his career and ups and downs and, and what Ifs and, and woulda coulda shouldas uh, Then we get the uh, the Wrestlemania 7 clip which was the, the blindfold Match between Roberts and Martel Which kind of weird a few of these clips that they Decided to pick from you know I guess they just didn't want to Show Savage uh Again, right? They had already shown Savage earlier. Was that the, was that the thing? And they didn't want to show him again because they show him at four because it would have been like, um, because it would have been like Savage and Elizabeth here or Warrior even. You know what I mean? Like there could have been a few different things they showed. Next we get literally a thirty second match. It's a squash. It's Earthquake. Adam Bomb. Um, Harvey Whippleman comes out. He's kind of ripping on Howard Finkel. Finkel pushes Whippleman down. Adam Bomb comes down to the ring. Earthquake runs down. It's literally just belly to belly suplex, power slam, and then the big splash. Earthquake wins at 32 seconds. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm not going to spend much more talking about what happens. <laughs> uh, you know, you get you get the Fink shoving Harvey Whippleman down, which was you know you know got a little reaction out of the crowd. Um, you know, I mean, this little fun segment here. Uh, Adam Bomb, who bounced around quite a bit, AWA, WCW. He was in Smoky Mountain for like two years, goes back to WCW. Good looking guy. You know, you could see he was. He was. Yeah. You could see why Vince, and to be honest with you, they do some stupid characters. I mean, back then, this wasn't a terrible character. Um, you know, the big guy from Three Mile Island, you know, certainly better than the guy who's, you know, half animal, half human, Manitar or whatever it was. But, uh, you know, I mean, some of his matches in WWE were not bad. Uh, I remember his Survivor Series, you know, when he when he made his debut was not bad, um, you know, but they just never really found anything for him. But uh, and, and Earthquake obviously here is at the tail end of his WWE career before he goes to WCW. And if I remember correctly, I believe he becomes the shark. The shark. Uh, yes, he yeah. was the shark. 
And then he went back to the WWF as one of the oddities. He was the guy under the mask. The Cartman shirt all the time. Yep, he had the Cartman t-shirt on. (laughs) Now, the thing with Adam Bomb is, and Darren, you mentioned good-looking guy, big dude, could move, had a fun move set. He went to WCW and got repackaged as Wrath. Wrath had a run of about three or four months where you legitimately thought this guy might be somebody. Maybe not a main eventer, but an upper mid-card guy for a while because he was still pretty young at the time. He was in his mid-30s at that point. He had some good years left. Then Kevin Nash decided he needed to go over Wrath to get ready for Goldberg at Starcade, and that was it for Wrath. He wound up as a tag team in Chronic with Brian Adams. And as a matter of fact, just recently, it came out that Adam Baum, whoever his real name is, has been arrested and has been charged with drug and weapons possessions. Just ugly stuff. He could be going away for a very long time. Not going to distract too much. But yeah, nothing match. Earthquake gets a squash. Have to think this match got shoehorned in even more because Lex and Yoko ran fairly long with the nerve hold. You couldn't have done a four-minute match here and made Luger Yokozuna 10 minutes with the same last finish. Come it's on, a great guys. point. There were some some definite timing issues, which we're going to see later on the show when they had to cut the 10-man tag that they had scheduled, and they just do like a little backstage segment with them, and they end up running that match on Raw, uh, I, I believe, the next week. So, um, yeah, just it, it seemed like they're, I think they started to get into some some timing issues here. Um, next up we have Jimmy Cornette in the back And he's cutting a promo for Yoko And he's talking about Perfect uh, doing a great job as the ref And he pointed out the refs were agreed to By both guys And you know what it was good J- uh, You mentioned Cornette was re- like He's always pretty good But th- he was really good at this point with Yoko He did a, he did a really good job for him He had set everything up with uh, with the Brett match for later on into the night for Yoko, you could tell he looks exhausted back there, like thinking about how he's got to go work a match with Brett in, in just a little bit. And uh, and then after this, Andrew, your point really gets piggybacked a little bit here because now we're up to WrestleMania eight. So in WrestleMania seven, we didn't see Ultimate Warrior when he won that retirement match against Macho Man, and then in WrestleMania eight, we didn't see the return of the Warrior at the end, which is another one that they might have shown. It was kind of like. Fitting with some of the other clips that they showed So they were uh, they were definitely not Wanting to show Warrior at all They show the the Undertaker and, and his entrance and, and, and then we get the setup For the ladder match And this was The second ever ladder match In the WWF at the time We actually did get a ladder match That was um, on one of the Coliseum videos Between Shawn Michaels And Bret Hart and, and it was a really good match too It really was and the one thing you'll notice about this match, which was great, and you know, you Shawn Michaels walks out with Diesel and then Razor Ramon, which is great. He walks out under the ladder. He's not afraid of the the bad luck walking underneath the ladder. You know, Shawn walks around it. And both of these guys I had read in a few different spots and and why they both think this match works so well was literally because of their friendship. They were really trusting of each other and what each other would do in the ring with one another for one another. And so they didn't have any weird ego stuff. They didn't have any weird safety stuff. They completely trusted one another. And I love watching back some of the first few ladder matches because they've evolved so much over time. And the way the ladder matches are now are, are a lot different too. Like it's more offense off of the ladder, jumping off of the ladder, that kind of thing, versus like they were really ingenious here about how they use the ladder 
And we talked about the Sean or uh, the Brett Owen match to open it up. This was another five star match, and and this was, I mean, one of the few shows in the history of pay per views, and in, and in definitely WWF WWE pay per views where you're getting two matches of this damn quality. I mean, this was freaking phenomenal. Yeah, um, on so many levels. Uh, you funny thing about the you mentioned the Brett Sean ladder match, which by the way. You you can get on YouTube. Uh, it never. I, I believe it's on their their DVD too, where they did the ladder match mm-hmm. uh, thing of, about thirteen years ago. But you can get it on YouTube. It, it is a damn good match. And Brett is very salty about this because he wanted to have yep. the first paper. I'm match. glad you mentioned that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's real salty about this because ladder matches come from Stampede Wrestling, um, and he's the guy that pitched the idea to Vince in the early '90s. So he, he, you know, we we could talk about that later. But he is salty about this. But I'll tell you. Uh, number one, one of the good things that they did here was get Diesel out of the ringside. I'm glad that it was just the two of them, and you don't have the guy outside taking the cheap shots at Razor throughout the match. I think that made the match much better right from that point on. Uh, from the first real spot with the ladder, when Razor puts it up on the apron and Michaels does the baseball slide into it, in person, the sound of that ladder when it hits Razor it is loud, and the crowd. All you hear from around you is "Holy shit!" Like, <laughs> like I mean, that's all you hear. Like people are floored, and from that point on, the rest of the match, you get people throughout the match just standing up and sitting down, and standing up and sitting down. And a lot of the latter stuff throughout the match is done by Sean because obviously, you know, he is the high flying guy who does all the crazy moves and you do get that great shot that they would do the slow-mo of and the great picture of the big splash, you know, from the top of the ladder, uh, the, the spot where he, you know, climbs the turnbuckles and just stands on top of the ladder and pushes it down. But there are also some really cool spots in here that I think were kind of maybe necessarily not supposed to happen. But the way that the ladder like fell on a guy, yeah, it, it's like it was perfect. It's it was meant like, for yeah. this match to be great. Yeah, and it couldn't have possibly been that that's what was supposed to happen because the ladder would literally be teetering as the two guys are laying, and the thing would just fall over onto the guy. Like it would just be perfect. And I mean, you even get the spot where Razor hits the the concrete outside in addition to the ladder stuff and slamming the ladder into Mike. And I, I mean, I really can't emphasize enough. The sound that that ladder was making as it, and then you get the point where you think, you think the ladder is broke. It's all like kind of warped, and Razor's climbing up the thing and it's wobbly. And Jerry Lawler's on there yelling, "It's broke! He can't climb the ladder!" But yeah, I mean, from start to finish, compelling. The the stuff with the ladder is phenomenal. The story that they tell throughout the match, the moves off the ladder, uh, and, and like I told you guys, you know, a couple of episodes ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. After that match was over, my father, I swear to you, he looked at me and goes, Darren, that is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's cool. Okay. Here's to me what makes this match great. You know how many ladders WWE uses in ladder matches nowadays? Oh, seven, eight. Yeah. If Four different lucky. size ladders. Yeah. One ladder. I don't know if there was a replacement somewhere in the event that that ladder broke. (laughs) There was one ladder and they used it perfectly. The bump that I remember 
Razor monkey flips Sean into the ladder and Michaels bumps twice. He goes into the ladder and then brings the ladder down to the floor on top of him. That was genius. And you wonder how the two guys planned that out to that degree. These were two guys, two of the best in-ring psychologists that the WWF ever had. Razor Ramon, Scott Hall having the mind for the business that he has, and Shawn Michaels being Shawn Michaels. This was tremendous stuff from start to finish. There are some people who think that this was a Shawn Michaels showcase match. Ric Flair has gone on record as saying that this ladder match was basically Shawn Michaels and a ladder. There just happened to be another guy with him. I don't think that's No, true. I disagree. No. Yeah. Razor yeah. could work, and the image of him at the top of the ladder holding both belts crowd going crazy that's part of the reason why the yoko booking here gets me so angry because they had so many other guys right there that could have been convincing heels that could have worked so much better matches right there but we had to have yokozuna because reasons working twice on this show you know this match uh, was brilliant it's an all-timer if you haven't seen it you need to go watch it. It's a five-star match. If you can find a hole in this match, it's you're the ultimate pessimist. This is about as good as it gets. Yeah, the Sean when he rides it down, um, the ladder down too. There's another like iconic spot. Um, just it, it's funny. It's just another one. Like a couple of these matches uh, definitely give me goosebumps talking about them and like reliving them and having rewatched them over the last uh, week or so, getting ready to to prep and, and talk about this show. So yeah, this is just a uh, this is great. And and at this point between you know the Brett match and then this match, you have these two matches that probably went. This one probably went a little long. And you mentioned Yoko and 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 Luger probably went a little long. So then what they have to end up doing is. There's a they go to the back and it's a backstage segment with uh it was supposed to be the smoking guns, the one, two, three kid, uh Sparky Plug, Bob Hawley, and Tatanka versus Jeff Jarrett, IRS, the Head Shrinkers, and Rick Martell. Um, and that match gets cut and it ends up being shown on Raw, I think the next uh, the next Monday night. Uh we then get another in, uh, interaction with the fake Clinton. He's talking with DB Aussie back there. And then we get the WrestleMania 9 clip Focusing on the Yokozuna win over Bret Hart They don't show Hulk Hogan at all uh, In that part of it And it is a perfect setup for Our main event match now Which is going to be Bret Hart versus Yokozuna The second title match of the night And we get the video package Of Bret Hart, you know And his build and his um, you know, I guess his rise to being a big star And uh, they introduce Burt Reynolds as the ring announcer and um, out with Burt Reynolds is hey here we go Jenny Garth little Kelly Taylor na 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 Beverly Hills nine oh two and oh she's the guest timekeeper and uh, the special ref you guys mentioned it talk about getting a pop Rowdy Roddy Piper and I do love what they did with both of the special guest refs you you had this built in with with the baby faces they had these built in backstories right because we had uh, Luger versus um, Perfect at Mania 9 Just a year before And now Perfect's re- uh, the special guest ref In the Luger match And we had that great Brett versus Piper match At Mania 8 at 92 Just two years before this And so we've got this little built in Brett Piper thing Maybe Piper's mad at him Because he beat him at Mania a few years back You just It, it plants some doubt 
and some seeds in your mind at the very least. And I mean, Brett's Brett is doing this is one thing that they they abused Brett a lot in like 93, 94, like getting as many matches. How many shows did they have where Brett was in multiple matches? I mean, five, six. I mean, it, you know, we think about 93, he did it what it uh, he did it at the King of the Ring, he did it at the SummerSlam, and, and then into 94 at the Rumble cuz he's selling the knee on the way out and then again at WrestleMania here. So I mean, there's just so many times where it's like, "Hey Brett, we need you for about 45 minutes tonight. Can you do it?" Sure, you know, no problem. And he sells that leg in better than I think almost anyone when he's got a, a leg injury or a knee injury, he, he comes out selling it. And uh, we get the world heavyweight title match. And again, this is nothing special at all. This is more of the moment that it would finally kind of felt like the crowning moment and the crowning achievement for uh, for Brett in here. Um, at the end, he grabbed his knee. Um, he was selling the injury. He went to the middle rope. Yoko caught him. Uh, he had a nice belly to belly there. Um, and and it felt like that was kind of the it for Brett. That was it for Brett. He'd already lost to Owen earlier in the night. This is just going to not be Brett's night. He lost to Yoko last year again. And then Yoko goes up for the bonsai drop. He falls. He loses his balance. Brett moves out of the way. Yoko hits his head on the floor. Brett rolls over, gets the cover. One, two, three. Uh, 10 minutes, 38 seconds after a 14 minute match for Yoko. So he went 25 minutes in two separate matches throughout the night. But it doesn't matter at this point now. Once it's over, all that matters is your new heavyweight champion, Bret Hart. And we get the big celebration in the ring uh, where guys are coming out. Uh, Macho Man's out there and he's really pumped. And, and uh, I guess uh, in a shoot sense, he was really excited backstage for Bret. Like he respected Bret a whole lot and he was happy that, that he got this moment. And you mentioned it, Andrew, earlier on. We get that great moment where... Um, it, it probably served twofold, right? Because I bet you Owen, in the real sense, wanted to be out there celebrating with his brother. He was happy that Brett got this big win. And then it worked so perfect for his character that the only way he could really be out there was if he was in in the aisleway, you know, like building their story moving forward, going, even on my biggest night, you're still the guy at the end of the show standing, getting the ovation. Like, how the hell did you do this to me again, Brett? It was a great story that started, that ended. They put a bow on it. The match was actually kind of secondary to the whole story. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things. You know, I, I love the way Piper worked. I love how intense he was as a ref. Um, I, you know, he, he's getting in there, the hard counts on the five. And, uh, you know, I love the spot where Cornette pulls him out of the ring and he kind of shrugs at the camera and then punches him in the face and Cornette you know, takes the bump. And then you get the idea that that Piper's probably going to be, you know, a protagonist. Because you never know what you're going to get with Piper, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the thing with Piper. You saw what happened with Perfect, and Piper could always fly off the handle. You never quite tell. When Once he punches Cornette, you kind of get the idea of where he's going. By the way, I went to several house shows, either at the Garden, uh, at the old Brendan Burns slash Continental Airlines Arena slash IZOD Center, uh, throughout the summer of 94, the fall of 94, uh, Brett and Yoko worked all the time together in cage matches. And th- they were working for the title in cage matches for months at house shows. Um, so, I mean, for, for Brett, to, you talked about, you know, the Rumble, the King of the Ring, working double time, cage matches with a guy weighing 560 pounds for months. 
Yep. I mean, and Cuba wants about carrying the country. I saw the same one that you saw with Yoko at the Anaheim Pond. Did you the, really? There the, you go. The brand, which is funny. That was the first um, live wrestling event that I ever went to. My uncle got me tickets for uh, one of my birthdays, and it was the. Yeah, it was, I guess, late, it must have been late 93 or early 94, whatever it was, and uh, it was, you know, steel cage match at the Anaheim Pond, Brett Yoko. Yep, yep, I, I, I think I saw that match three times in 93 at, at either Nassau, MSG, and, and the Izod Center, but yeah, so l- let's talk about the finish of this match. So, I'm conflicted on the finish because one of two things, I like how it kind of came out of nowhere, you weren't expecting it, and you know, at, at that moment when he fell, I, I certainly didn't think it was going to be the end of the match. No. Uh, I, I figured something else was going to have to happen. Um, you know, I'm glad it was clean. But how do we feel about Brett's big achievement? Crowning moment. And crowning moment, MSG, going to end up, you know, with, with Luger and Razor putting them, putting them on the shoulders and, and the place is going nuts. How do we feel about the ending of the match being kind of fluky? I guess I'll tackle this one. And I think it goes to the frustration that I had with just the way that this was booked. I like Brett going over clean. The problem was they had built Yokozuna up into this indestructible force where the only one that could beat him was himself. He goes up. Loses his footing on the drop, falls down. Yes, it's anticlimactic, but WWF booked themselves into a hole there with Yoko in a lot of ways. And that was the only way they could get the belt off him. Again, I think the bigger problem is Yoko shouldn't have been in that position to start with. Yeah, and and I would have loved to see. I mean, in 93, in the main event of WrestleMania 9, Brett's got him in the sharpshooter. You know, and then we hear this whole thing about can Brett get him in the sharpshooter? I mean, he he did it a year before. He has him in the sharpshooter when Fuji throws the salt in his eyes, and then, which was kind of funny in both years. So the year before '93, Brett gets the he he looks like he's about to win, and then Fuji throws the salt in his eyes. Yoko does hit doesn't hit one move, not an right. elbow, not a leg splash, not the bonsai, nothing. It's the salt in the eyes, and then he pins Brett, and then in this. WrestleMania, it's almost the same mirror image on the opposite side. And you know, Yoko falls, Brett doesn't do anything, not a, like a I mean, nothing, not an elbow drop, not a knee. He doesn't put him in the sharpshoot, like, I mean, nothing at all. He just goes over and pins him. And it's good because it was clean and it's good because it was kind of out of nowhere. But uh, it was funny in both years, it really felt like the other guy was just about to win that match. And I mean, honestly, their 93 main main event. Wasn't bad It was much better work than this match Because I think Yoko I mean it was his first Wrestlemania main event He knew he was winning the title I'm sure at that point he was probably a little pumped It was great he's going to work with Brett and then with Hulk Hogan What an awesome night you know Um, But uh, yeah I just It's it's still The the match isn't good But it's still kind of You're able to kind of I guess forget a little bit about it with the the celebration at the end, and then kind of immediately them letting you know that hey, uh, Brett and Owen, like this is going to be where we're going next. I feel like every WrestleMania, there's one match where either you or Darren say, "Oh, this wasn't that good." Whatever. I liked this match a lot, and maybe it was no technical masterpiece. It wasn't Brett versus Owen for sure, but it was fun. 
they hit the right notes and mm-hmm. the good guy wound up winning mm-hmm. to send the crowd home happy. And that's, you don't and, have to do a whole heck of a lot in matches like that. Not more than that. This had another one of Lawler's great lines right off the rip. Burt Reynolds goes, Rowdy, Roddy, Piper. And Lawler's reaction is, oh, no, I hate this guy. <laughs> and that's when you know watching this that this is going to be good because you're waiting for Lawler to get his comeuppance in some way, shape, or form the entire evening. And it turns out this guy, who we had no idea if they'd ever met before, we would had no idea if they had any interaction, whatever, this guy he doesn't like winds up being the special guest referee in a match between the big heel and the guy whose family he's been making fun of for most of the evening. You know something good's going to happen here. Brett comes out selling from earlier in the night in a really nice touch. Piper got really into the job of being a referee to the point where him standing up to Cornette was one thing. Him standing up to Yokozuna and showing absolutely no fear fitting in with the rest of his character that he'd been establishing in WWE for a decade at that point. That was great. And you almost felt like they were setting up like a Piper Yoko thing, you know, like the way it went at the end. It was good. Yeah. And and this goes back to my earlier point and one of many reasons why I do not like the Lex Yoko match at all whatsoever. Yoko needed a guy to carry him. Mm -hmm. That's what Brett did here. It doesn't need to be complicated in order to be good. And that's something that I think gets lost in a lot of professional wrestling booking right now. It's one of the things AEW is doing very well. Simpler is sometimes better. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. You've got a big bad guy and you've got a guy in Bret Hart who does a really nice job of being the sympathetic baby face and fighting from underneath. Let them do what they're good at. That's what they did. It was ten times better than the than the the earlier, which is funny. It wasn't great, but it's still ten times better than the Luger Yoko match. A hundred times. By by the way, the express Luger comes out. He's the first guy to congratulate Brett when he raises his hand. The expression on his face, he just looks like he's so not into what's happening. No, he's so pissed. He's yeah, so he's pissed. over this. He's, he's even walking around the ring with his hands on his hips, which is body language number one of. You're irritated. Like, you can't hide that. And, you know, he's, everyone else is, is ends up, like, surrounding him. And he's kind of off in the corner by himself, pacing back and forth, just not into this at all. Like, he's legitimately pissed off. And, well, I, I, I understand what Andrew's saying. And, and, look, nobody was happier than me to see Brett go over here. You get the moment you want. You get the good guy, you know, winning the belt. But a part of me still says, I, I wonder what Brett Luger here could have been. Agree. If Brett carries him, you could have done some cool stuff. You know, maybe, you know, Luger without burying Luger where he muscles out of the out of the sharpshooter at one point in the match, or maybe this is the time, you know, Luger hits Brett with the forearm and, and Brett kicks out and you get a massive false finish or this is the first time that Lugers uses the torture rack and Brett finds a way out of it and and rolls him up into a small package yeah like a counter you know yeah for for or a roll up out of the out of the out of the package or you know turns the package into a crucifix and gets him you know for, for the win something I I think as good as this mania was and how it's remembered for the Brett moment at the end and the two great matches 
Brett and Luger here could have been something really good. And if you would have gotten a great Brett Luger match, this wouldn't be remembered as a really good WrestleMania. It might be the best. People would talk about it as possibly the best WrestleMania of all time. It going up to, I mean, it was the best mania between now uh, up until 17, I think is yeah. where you could probably start to like, you know, yeah. have your debates and start to. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the first, you know, 17 years of WrestleMania. This was the one that people, I think, remembered the most fondly. And there were just a lot of good things here, a lot of fun. And this led to a really, really good 94. Uh, for Brett, I mean, he has this unbelievable match where we talk about Brett carrying people. I mean, he carries Kevin Nash, Diesel, to a great match at the King of the Ring. Um, following this, and Diesel that's when talks then... about that. By the way, there's a great shoot with Kevin Nash where he talks about Brett. Brett is the best guy in the ring I've ever worked with because, and he mentions that match, and he talks about that match and the fact that he just he carried me. He made me a star. He carried me through that whole match, and he talks about. All of his matches with Brett and how it the match is ninety percent Brett and ten percent him. Yeah, and he has yeah. the Owen stuff later, and uh, I mean, just this was finally the time that Brett got to shine. It's unfortunate that the the company wasn't huge at this point, and you know there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't just a a. a there weren't big stars thing. I mean, there was a big steroid scandal going on for about two or three years, and you know, behind the scenes, Vince was involved in a lot of it. You have Hogan leaving. You have a lot of things going like changing. And um, from just a work quality standpoint, I think this was one of the first shows. Was like that Owen Brett match might have been one of the first matches where at, me at um, you know seven or eight years old is kind of realizing like. There was something a little bit different about this match This wasn't just kind of like the Hulk Hogan match I used to like where the good guy went over There was like like, I was like in awe the whole time And it's like you're starting to figure out What like work rate is When you see Bret Hart And you know Shawn Michaels kind of Taking the lead here so it was Maybe a year late but it was a time Where Vince was starting to realize You know what for for the next year or so Bret's my guy until he Again gets the kind of um, visions of grandeur with another big man Which is going to be Diesel and Kevin Nash And he wants to strap the rocket to him And that doesn't really work out as well And and he ends up having to again Come back to Bret Hart you know, uh, in, in another year or two But this was a great moment for Bret And all in all like I had a blast rewatching this mania There were the, the really good matches As you mentioned Darren the moment at the end A couple other fun moments with Burt Reynolds And, and some of the celebrities And uh, just one that will always be uh, Definitely the top five mania for me No doubt about it It's really good I, I don't know if I can put it above Wrestlemania 3 Simply for historical significance And Wrestlemania 3 Quietly had some really good technical matches as well And I agree with that Yeah, But it's yeah. in the upper echelon of Wrestlemania's for sure Certainly in the top third of Wrestlemania's That we've seen There have been 36 of them Top 10, top 12, certainly right Higher than that, absolutely But it's uh, it's certainly a different kind of great As far as Wrestlemania's are concerned Prior manias in the bigger arenas were spectacles. The garden, big arena, a lot of history to it, but the way it was set up, the fact that it was a little bit more intimate and the fact that, okay, you're going to see a wrestling show tonight. That's what that show brought. Yep. Yeah. There was no, well, you know, like you talked about, you know, sometimes keep it simple, stupid. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's what this, they, uh, other than the ladder match, which, you know, I won't say that was simple, 
but it was simple from the standpoint of it was a one-on-one match with the It made sense. Clock. It was like yeah, they had a reason sense. for the ladder match with the yep. the storyline leading up to it with the two IC champs. Sean was the champ and then he got the title suspended, but he came back and he had the other belt. And so there's these two guys with the belts. It made sense to put them up on a ladder. It, it just like it fit. It was the perfect time to bring a ladder match into the, into, you know, the WWF at the time universe. So Yep. Yeah, this was this was a fun one to rewatch, and um, um, I'm glad because the next two years, especially eleven, twelve's. I mean, I don't like. I'm. I look more fondly back on the Brett Sean um, Iron Man match than I think most do. Um, in twelve, it's just it's not necessarily one that you you rewatch a bunch of times because it it's you know an hour and five minute match or or whatever it is. But uh. The next two manias were a little bit of a struggle And then we kind of get to 97 at least where the, the company, things start to turn for the company And we get that great Brett Austin Match which will go down as you know probably On the, the top five list of Wrestlemania Matches with, with two of the ones that we saw here Yeah no question by the way With Brett and Sean who you know Obviously you know were against each Other countless times throughout Their history in my opinion The best Brett Sean Match was their match at Survivor Series 92. 92. Yep. I think that was their best work together. It was great. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, no disrespect to the Iron Man match, which, I mean, they did everything they possibly could. And, and yes, they pulled it off. But watching two guys wrestle for 60 minutes without a decision is really, really hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that being said, yeah, their match at Survivor Series 92, I thought was... Was their best match, but um, the only the, the only negative that I will put in the WWE at this point in time, Gino, is that the tag team division was god awful, terrible. I mean, the you know we men on a mission and the Quebecers, you had like the, the smoking, smoking guns, gun, the head shrinkers, I the mean, body donnas, the body donnas, the, the heavenly body. Yeah, like, yeah. There was yeah. A, by the way, there was a dark match: the Bushwhackers versus the heavenly bodies. Um, yeah. I mean, there was just nothing. well. That's why the next year they they put uh, Davy Boy and Luger kind of together, yeah. kind of hoping they could, and then they end up. It ends up being Davy uh, Bulldog and, and Owen. You know, I guess it's in like ninety six to ninety seven when they end up uh, getting together. So it it, it was a struggle for the yeah. next couple of years. It really was kind of until you got the New Age Outlaws in there, were kind of like at least a consistent in the division. But um, I mean, again. This was a lot of fun. We're going to do it one of these times where we actually talk longer about the WrestleMania than the WrestleMania show. I feel like this it's a challenge. Close. It's this a challenge. We're getting closer yeah, each was... and every time. It's it's yeah, going to be a... this, this WrestleMania was only about I think 2 hours and 37 minutes was the runtime. So, if you guys want to just, you know, kind of shoot it for another 35 minutes, we could do it. We can do it absolutely. So, uh, I mean, I, I really appreciate this, guys. We have a, we're having a lot of fun doing this. It wor- it works out well because there's not a lot going on and with the WWE network now, people can hear this, they can get nostalgic, they can very easily go back and throw the old show on and watch it and listen along and and have some of their kind of uh, fun memories to watch with and we'll we'll have to I made the executive decision to make sure that we were able to talk about 10 Because I knew Darren you were there And this is one that it seemed like we all enjoyed a lot And this was one of the better ones So I wanted to make sure we actually got the chance to rewatch a, a real good one But uh, next week We'll have to throw out uh, uh, a few on the poll again And we'll kind of 
I'll I'll do us a favor and start with like thirteen. <laughs> and Thank we'll go, you. Like, I appreciate we'll skip, that. We'll skip eleven, twelve, and we'll like start with uh with thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, kind of sixteen, or you know four that are in that next range. And uh, and then it, it'll be hard. Like we'll, we'll maybe we'll go back. Like I said, as we get closer to some of the others, and we can do some Summer Slams or a King of the Ring here, or there, or an old Survivor Series. It's just going to be uh, a little more difficult to do once we start getting into those six, five, six, seven hour WrestleManias, which um, become more of a, a task on the rewatch than they do kind of the fun nostalgia that we have now. Yeah, yeah. you're not kidding. I mean, you look at, first of all going back to WrestleMania 12, the Bret Shaw and Iron Man match. To me, it's the million-dollar baby of wrestling matches. It's tremendous. It's outstanding. You don't need to see it more than once. Mm-hmm. Once is all you need. It's a tough watch. It's fantastic. You can appreciate the art form, and then you never want to see it again. That's the way I view WrestleMania 12. So, Gino, thank you for starting with WrestleMania 13. There's a couple <laughs> of really good ones, of course. You get the Bret Austin thing at 13. Austin's coronation at WrestleMania 14, complete with Shawn Michaels getting a really good match at despite having a broken back. I mean, there was so much going on in that time period from 13 to 17, 18. About the only WrestleMania for me that's off limits is 20 for obvious reasons. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? I I mean, we, we, I know it's a bad WrestleMania, but there's so much to talk about with that Goldberg and Lesnar stuff. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's not the reason. Oh, okay. There's this guy from Canada whose name is like Voldemort that winds up winning a pretty big match. Yeah, yeah. Something really bad happens about five it, years later. It puts you in a weird spot having to like talk so positively about a guy who's like incredible in the ring. You know what I mean? It's just yeah, like you're yeah. in a you're in a weird yeah. spot. So, if, yeah, by the is... way, as a, as another plug, if anyone out there has not watched the Dark Side of the Ring two parter on Chris yeah. Benoit, oh, it's great. Go do it. You can tremendous. There's great storytelling there. And the more recent ones on New Jack and the Brawl for All are pretty good too. Yeah, you can pull them up on their website if you haven't too, just like pop.com and you can you can just rewatch them on there. That's great. So um thanks again, fellas. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I'm enjoying doing this. The the folks out there are are having fun listening with it. It's given us a nice little uh little run back through the history of the WWF into the WWE. And uh, I look forward to uh, reconnecting with you guys in the next week or so and maybe planning out uh, another one in that in that next era of the WWF. Thanks, Gina. Looking forward to it. It's always a good time. And my Thursday nights are, are fun while I'm in the yeah. So thank you. Yeah. yeah, this gives us a really nice thing to look forward to each week. So thank you for that. And to anybody who thinks that we're being tone deaf or striking the wrong <laughs> words, there's nothing that says you have to listen. I got two words for you. <laughs> That's a couple of years later. We might That's get to a, that next week. We might get to that next week. So uh, Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, you know where to find them uh, online. Um, thanks again. And we'll be back again uh, in the next week or so with another WrestleMania rewatch. Let's take a quick break here on That's What G Said. We'll hear from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. And that's going to do it for this episode of That's What G Said Podcast. A big thank you to Darren and to Andrew for coming on and recapping another episode of WrestleMania. And remember, don't forget, subscribe, download, rate, and review anywhere you can. Share the show around with some of your friends. If they're horse racing fans, wrestling fans, sports fans, fans of the Tiger King, anything that we talk about, let them know That's What G Said is the best place to get all of your information. Have a great one, folks. We'll talk to you a little later this week.